Episode 5 of Miniatures Monthly at the Crate and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston, and as ever, I am joined by Tom Senior. Good day. Hello, Tom. Hello. We're cracking open a cold one. It's lovely. With some lads. The heat, some... heat wave is over, and now we could just sit around and drink beer and talk about miniatures. Indeed. Yeah, it was, it's, um, it's been so hot this week, not just go ahead to what we've been painting, but it's been so hot that I had to move my entire painting setup from our conservatory mm. into the living room, because within a minute of being in the conservatory... I would sweat so much, the sweat would go into my eyes and I would no longer be able to see. That's a sad state of affairs. It is. That's why it should never be hot in Britain, really. Yeah. Um, and indeed, actually, this uh, we went away last weekend and I was so worried because I, I found a new thing that I'm doing is when I'm painting or working on a particular project or an army, to give myself sort of inspiration, I set up everything I've painted for that force. Mm. So in this case, my Thousand Sons, um, where I can see them in the nice light of the conservatory because it feels then it's like this is what i'm working on it's not just mm. poor betting on a long grueling project um it's nice to be able to see him and have a sense of this growing collection growing army and i realized to my horror we were away at a friend's wedding party and um we realized to my horror that they they had been left out on the side in our conservatory during yeah, this heat wave yeah. and I was, you know, I was a three hour train journey from home. There was no, there was no fixing this, mm. but I did find myself nervously Googling, like, what happens to miniatures in the sun? And actually, and I found a useful thread from a couple of years ago, somebody talking about leaving their miniatures in a hot car, which mm. is very similar in terms of a hot box, basically. And plastic miniatures are mostly fine. Hey. They can, they can survive that. And indeed, they were mostly fine. Resin probably will oh, get right, a bit okay. bendy and, and dodgy so there's my tip number one for the month don't don't do it anyway because it's definitely not worth doing just because just to test it out yeah but maybe in this heat that we're having particularly if it returns take care of your resin friends <laughs> um the, the mental image of you coming back to see your thousand suns turn into a kind of glittering red puddle well, it's, it's, uh, it's the flesh yeah. change. It's like, <laughs> yeah. no, not <laughs> this is why we Arrow have man. to t- turn them all into dust. Um, yeah. So I was very afraid of the flesh change uh, setting in, but it did not. No. So that's my excellent. Yeah. Cause I, was, I had that, we were working so hard in the burning and prospero set that I had this nightmare scenario where I have to tell you, like, it's all gone. I've melted all of my sons. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long project, that one. Still yeah. Finished for me. Um, we'll get onto that later because that's going to, that's going to feature. Um, so news this month is kind of 40k right for sure new edition of Warhammer 40,000 8th edition came out two weeks ago now mm-hmm. um however oh no a week ago yeah I yeah I can do time that's how that works <laughs> mm. um and um obviously so that's huge news we're gonna get into that in a pretty big way mm. um but there was something else that they've done which might be interesting to people particularly people who've been drawn to Age of Sigma from our previous discussions of it uh, which is a sort of quiet re-release or new edition of the core set for Age of Sigmar, um, along with a few releases around that. And actually, it's kind of interesting what they've they've chosen to do because uh, I think you know I don't know if you agree, Tom, but I felt that like everything from the presentation of New Forty K to the way they've released it shows off the lessons they've learned from Age of Sigmar. Yeah, for sure. And those things. Some of those things as an Age of Sigma player first make you a little bit jealous because it's like, oh man, like, yeah. um, but actually they've done some things with this that they've not even done with 40k. So, 
Uh, it's called Thunder and Blood. And what it is, is basically exactly the same contents of the original starter box. Mm-hmm. Um, minus the two, minus three models. So you don't get, uh, Vanders Hammerhand, who is the Stormcast Eternal Celestin on Dracoth model that you use as a different character. Yeah. Um, you don't get Corgus Cull, who is the corn lord with a big dog. And you don't get the Blood Secretor, which is still the stupidest word in Warhammer. <laughs> yes. Um, who is the very important for a corn army, uh, totem bearer who mm. opens a big portal to the realm of chaos, which definitely isn't magic because corn hates magic. It's just opening a door like it's any other blood. door. It's yeah. just, it's just like that thing in the shining, basically. The, the blood skull door. Yeah. Basically open a big lift, all the blood comes out. Yeah. Um, you don't get those three. You get everything else in that box, which is two pretty substantial forces. Mm. Um, on obviously the rules and things, I think I think a smaller version of the book that came with the old core set, right? Um, however, they've done some interesting things. I think with a view to making the game more accessible, one is that the corn miniatures are on a red plastic sprue. And the Stormcast miniatures are on a gold plastic sprue. Hooray. Which is it's, 90% it's of painting mode. them. That's fantastic. <laughs> Just give that a wash and you're done, basically. Yeah, so that's interesting. And then the other thing they've done is the lower half of the box um, is... It's still a box, but it's designed to look like a building, so you can use it as a little piece of terrain. Mm. And it comes with a fold-out mat to give you instant play space, something to play on. Yeah, it's real nice. It's just, um, The difference, the, the big thing they've obviously tried to do is have it shorten the time between opening the box and actually playing a game mm. so you just open it open up the flat pack you put your mat down and then they're i guess are they snap fit are they easy to yeah well, anyway? they're, 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 they're all snap fit models or yeah. at least mono pose models so you just clip them out put them together and yeah. that's it then and, and yeah, then you've got an all red force and an all gold force mm. which is a step up from gray versus gray right yeah it does look a lot lot better mm. it does look a lot which better. is super interesting because there's a you know, one of the rumors earlier in the year, which has proven to be true across the board, is that GW were sort of going to stratify their games so that AOS was the entry level game mm. with obviously competitive headroom, but you know, at a very basic level, the simplest of the three games. Um, 40k was somewhere in the middle, and then Horus Heresy, which is sticking with seventh edition 40k rules, was the heady top end, arguably bloated game. Mm. Um, and this seems to fit that because the other side of this is that box is 50 quid, which impressed me when I saw it. Uh, that's the same price as a start collecting box. Um, yeah, it is. You get a lot of models. Uh, I think the corn force especially is a bit incomplete without the blood yeah. separator. It, like it is, it's designed to function around those kind of buff banner pieces and taking that out is a little bit of a, a, a shame for them. But I would argue that this is a more impressive, um, starter start collecting box for stormcast than the mm. start collecting box for stormcast is <laughs> yeah the start, collecting, start collecting stormcast box is a the celestin on foot two retributors five liberators and three prosecutors mm. just from a uh i think if it is everything else right this is that's the relicter the heralder oh, the herald is not in there oh he's not in there no he's a separate dude okay so it's Relic- those great really great yeah, so it's the relic relicter two squads of liberators mm three paladins and, and three prosecutors i think so yeah i think that's right and yeah you're right that is just straight up better mm. um, for the same price so. same price yeah that's a really good point and then you can just use your corn uh bits and pieces to make blood blood tornadoes like i did last month or yeah, just have a bits box of just random legs and stuff well i mean people don't realize if they don't play like super competitive um age of sigma but you need like a blood tornado per unit ideally that's they're like rhinos absolutely right like you know transport and 
<laughs> exactly. In the realms. Yeah. Everyone just arrived via Blood Tornado. Blood, blood nado, there are a lot yeah. of to- uh, tornadoes in AOS, actually, aren't there? I've got to apologise to you, Tom, because when I cropped the image for the Blood Tornado <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the, uh, the splash art for the last episode, I had no idea when I was doing it that I had turned it into a big blood cock. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the more you look at it, the worse it gets, so we apologise. You know, that. I mean, and this, this is not only a, a maybe a violation of YouTube's... Um, you know, content policy, mm, but also certainly. Uh, broadly a violation of the sort of chaos pantheon because the two gods, you know, Corn uh, and Slanesh are on diametrically opposed Slanesh, corners. It's a, it's a Slanesh-y trick, obviously. You yeah, exactly. Cropped yeah. into that particular angle. Lol. Truly um, grotesque. Yeah. Um, and because I did it by accident, therefore it was Inch's fault. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But nonetheless, I think it's worth mentioning that box because it is interesting uh, as a way of getting into the hobby, providing you want one of those two forces. Yeah. And the, I guess the thing that's sort of interesting around that is they've now released uh, the Vandus Hammerhand model and the Corgus Call model and the Brothers Creator model as two separate boxes yeah. that you can sort of bolt on. But you don't really have to. And the nice thing about it is that that means that, like, for example, the Blood Secretor is now available outside of that core box, mm. even though he still comes with Vandus, <laughs> um, Corgus Call, which is a frustrating bit. Get Chaos Lord with every one of them. Because you need more than one of those Blood Secretors, really, to be yeah. effective. So, yeah, free Chaos Lord with yeah. every... <laughs> Strange way, to, strange way to bundle those, actually. I think yeah. it's because they're on the same sprue. Right. And they haven't, yeah, they haven't redone the sprues. Mm. They've just made them in different plastic. Mm. So it does, it does feel like a bit of a kind of consolidation of existing effort because AOS is in such a down, like, blank period. Yes. Like, there's been nothing Understandably. Since. So there's been nothing since Skirmish, and Skirmish is a mm. booklet, you know, like, so. The other thing they did announce is that they're going to release a separate book for their kind of narrative army play. Mm. Uh, which I've completely forgotten the name of. Um, Realm? Uh, oh, God. oh, God. What's it called? Path to Glory? Path to Glory, that's it. Yeah, Path to Glory. So that, this was in the General's Handbook, and it was a very basic loose set of instructions as to how to build your army from force to force, and it came with some sort of persistent uh, units. Yeah, so it's, it's somewhere between full AOS and skirmish. Yeah. So yeah. the more battles you play, the bigger your army gets, but mm. rather than thinking about individual men's that you're adding you're adding units at a time and you've got a kind of flowchart of missions so if a force loses a certain mission you segue into a different type mm. of mission to give your give you a kind of multi-game narrative context to it uh, and they're going to blow that out and kind of expand it and put it into its own book uh to be released T- tbc when it's coming out but uh it sounds like uh, an interesting lean towards the narrative side of things for aos just as 40k is kind of going mm. all out and on everything but you know with a big gaming focus i would say um aos is kind of showing its narrative side and maybe that will be the focus going forward or maybe it just happens to be that's what that's what the releases are like right now yeah and i think there's a mixture of like i think they're finding a good identity for aos because obviously general's handbook 2 is very close as well which yeah probably gonna be next month's news i imagine mm-hmm. hopefully um i think it's rumored for next month or month after but like it also feels like Everything, everything that's happening with AOS is stuff that doesn't involve new models, mm. basically, or, or substantial new announcements or new rules. Yeah. Like, Carriage and Overlords were the big faction release, mm. and there's, you know, 40k has just taken over. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if every, every part of Games Workshop's manufacturing facility right now is just cr- cr- generating Dark Imperium boxes. Cranking out those space marines. Yeah. Yeah. The Forge Worlds, you know, they can make one thing. They're gonna, yeah. It's Primaris. They've learned how to make a new thing. And that's, that's very total blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. I yeah, yeah, I imagine we will. So, uh, well, I mean, maybe this is our, that's our way into yeah, sure. new 40k coming out. So, um, obviously we, we, last month we had played it. Um, but now it's properly out. Um, Tom, have you, you haven't picked up any parts of it yet? Or? Not yet. Um, so I'm going to pick it up next Friday when I get paid. Mm. So we go to get GW, get, get my big box of men. It's a good big box of men. Yeah. I can't wait to open it all up and have a look at the rule book and everything. So, um, I did, 
um, invest in the end. I, I didn't think I was going to, um, but just some, no, I mean, basically like I had that, I had this, what I realized is that like, despite having other projects on, I, those models are so good. Mm. Like I was just sort of, I, I was playing with the store demo copy cause they came out a bit earlier in a, in my friendly local game store. Mm. And I kind of realized I want to paint every model in this box. And that's the thing that clicked it for me. Yeah. Like I probably wouldn't have added weirdly, I wouldn't have bought one and split it because that means like I'm starting an army. Yeah. Like, and I, you know, I'm committing to that. What I realized was like, I love every model in that box. I really like the Primaris Marines. The Death Guard are beautiful models and they're really fun to paint. Um, and I'm excited about, I definitely, I'm excited about what's coming next for the Primaris specifically. I want to paint that dreadnought. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, but more in a kind of like I'm collecting these models. We'll see about the the game yeah, kind of side yeah. of it, and then that realization that because um the, I was going to get the rule book, most of the rule books in that box, and it's the same lovely hardback thing, and so the rest of it's just sort of like a, a bonus. So it made sense, particularly because uh, and this is maybe a good tip for people is like a lot of independent stores do discounts, and so because I'm like a member of my local store, I got. Like a relatively hefty, like twenty percent off on it. So it was Sweet. a bit, yeah. It was a nice kind of like. I mean, obviously, it's a it's an expensive hmm. indulgence, but this hobby is generally, and that felt like okay. That's my indulgence for the next month and a bit. Yeah, I think that uh, set seems completely worth it to me, given the number and quality of the models and the hardback book and yeah. just the kind of stuff that comes in there. The range rule isn't. Yeah. Well, they're close to thousand point armies, mm. like much closer than I think the Age of Sigma set yeah, got for sure. Um, and and yeah, if it was an, if, if I was really disinterested in one of the factions, then I probably would have stepped away from it. But because both of them were, were like, yeah, okay, I can see myself collecting both of these. That was that was the thing. Yeah, which is surprising for Death God because I've never had any interest in no, no in Plague Marines at all. Uh, but those models have just instantly swung me towards. I mean, I don't think I necessarily would collect them, but I'll I'll paint that box. Yeah, you know, the, we'll, stuff. we'll definitely go on talking about that as yeah, well. Like because yeah. those things are really cool. Um, and it's a really nicely presented it feels like it's a very well considered set of things you get in that box mm-hmm. like um i mean there's been a billion unboxing videos most people don't need to be told this but uh it's got the best box i've seen gw do it's not just like a box of stuff the all of the sprues are in their own box within the box mm-hmm. um which is sealed with a purity seal because of course it is nice um and that is not just a presentation thing it means that they they feel like they're being kept a bit safer and they're kind of, you've got somewhere to store them, which is nice. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then the book, cause I, I think it's cause it contains the hardback. So it needs to protect the sprues from the hardback. Right. Yeah. Um, and then that's in its own enclosure. And then beneath that enclosure is things like the dice. Um, there's a, like a folding card version of the core rules, mm. um, which is really nice to have and two mini codexes for the two factions in the book. Uh, so the two factions in the box, and just other sort of bits and bobs. Like they've done a really nice job with the new. I'll use it for other things. I think twelve inch range ruler, right? Because it's like a, it's like a floppy plastic transparent ruler mm. rather than just a stick. Yeah. So you can sort of place it over things and mm. see through it, stuff, which is a nice idea. Um. So yeah, just a a solid a solid thing. Um. I also bought the index book for chaos because mm. obviously that relates to my siege demons, which I've got for AOS, but I can use straight away. And those books, are, so I assumed they'd be. A, equivalent to those very early like allegiance books for age of sigma which covers is, cover rules yeah. basically yeah that's what i thought and they are pretty much but actually like there's you know there's a couple of pages at the start four to eight pages at the start of you know fluff and and nice drawings hmm. a, lot of, a lot of art you might have seen before but like like some of the art from disciples of zinch shows up but that's not to be it's not that unexpected yeah um 
so it gets you up to speed on things and then there's even like splash pages for all of like the major chaos sub factions just to kind of explain to you what uh mm. what is a world eater what is a thousand sun and little kind of like boxed out kind of like this is their deal mm. like you know there's a little box out on prospero for example like oh, that's nice. especially because prospero's you know um now that th- there's been plot developments and the thousand sons have kind of reclaimed their home mm. like there's all that stuff kind of gets you up to speed on that and the uh, rules are nicely presented and yeah and it kind of feels like especially because they're selling them for 15 quid that seems like a really good really yeah, good, good kind of move like i'd be mm. pretty confident picking one up not to see if i was interested in an army but because i've already got those models it feels like a really good way to mm. kind of jump in with that That's stuff nice. yeah i can't wait to pick it up uh, i'm not even sure when i'll get around to painting it to be honest um but because i want to kind of concept out what i want to do with 40k before mm. i properly start putting bottles together really yeah um so it's been interesting to come up with plans for that so we could talk about that or we could talk about um the new book well should we talk about the setting because that will probably lead to our yeah, plans that's I think. a good idea yeah. because so the setting has changed a lot more than i thought it had mm. um so the new the, the core book the new core book has a really good long introduction to how the imperium is structured mm. it's very focused on the imperium i think if you were like the world's biggest like orc or tau fan it's probably a bit disappointing how how focused it is on the imperium and chaos yeah but i guess it's such a big setting that they've chosen to start somewhere but it goes into a lot of detail like it explains mm, the really navis nobility like the you know it explains the structure of imperial rule what the astronomican is and why that's important and like you know the structure of you know from from first principles so if you you're kind of not used to a 40k then it's a good introduction to that um but the thing that really gives you a look into the new setting is the novel that's been released time with this which is called dark imperium yeah like the set <laughs> yeah and like a different novel mm. oh yeah <laughs> confusingly enough like this is the one by guy haley and okay. also, yeah. Yeah, yeah and so i've i've read it all tom you've read most uh i think i've read about a third of the way in i think uh so i've got past the setup which is fascinating and if you're into the, this universe yeah so it opens i was really it was it gave me because I, I now i'm out to the fourth book of the horse heresy series oh yeah so catching up from the opposite direction yes uh dark imperium opens with what everyone thought was like gilliman's death basically hmm. um sort of right at the end not even at the end of the heresy end, end of the post heresy era with a first a space battle and then a with gilliman and his sort of bodyguard invading hmm. fulgrim who's the primarch of the emperor's children so the most Saneshi. yeah he's gone full demon as well in that uh yeah he describes the model that might happen in the future he's turned into a big sexy snake <laughs> man sure that's a weird image in, in my mind but yeah <laughs> yeah particularly because fulgrim is in a lot of the earlier books it's just like yeah. a very charismatic dude who's kind of chill with, with lovely hair yeah and then suddenly this <laughs> exactly he's got four arms what price lovely hair <laughs> <laughs> he's still got lovely hair i think yeah he does yeah <laughs> i think gilliman even makes a note like <laughs> it's like remember who you were fulgrim <laughs> you're still that person's still in there you still got that lovely hair yeah, beautiful quaff yeah uh so yeah that's quite uh, it's quite brutal and uh interesting though uh, i was kind of more interested in the the massive time skip that happens yeah after and then that point because so gilliman um was resurrected or brought out of the coma that he was brought out of stasis because he was put in stasis to preserve himself and yeah. then he's been brought back um by a mixture of people um including belisarius call who's the mechanic of march made us who's very important now mm. and the elder weirdly yeah they helped it's filthy xenos technology but at what cost etc yeah yeah um but what so i yeah i think you, 
you said it, but like I was expecting, I was expecting they've been talking about the Indomitus Crusade a lot. It's like this is Gilliman's return to the galaxy with this crusade to unite the fractured Imperium. Yeah, I thought that was going to be yeah. the thing. Nope, right. <laughs> it's not at all. So the new fiction picks up 150 years later as the Indomitus Crusade ends. Yes, which is really interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Mm. Um, one is that obviously it means that. Um, so people who are kind of concerned about like, how are their Primaris dreadnoughts? How are their Primaris captains? It's because actually the Primaris have now been around for ages and there's still tension with the existing Marines, but they've been around a long time. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me is, uh, I don't know if you've, have you got to the, the bit with the big parade? Uh, I think they're setting up for the parade. Right. In the bit I'm at. It's explicitly, and Gilliman even notices this, mm. it's an echo of Olinor, which oh, is, yes. yeah. um, at the end of the Great Crusade, which was the Emperor's crusade when the emperor decided to go back to terror to work on his big secret project that ended up dooming the imperium by accident <laughs> whoops um he had a big pr- pr- parade sort of mark the end of the crusade and gilliman does the same thing mm. and that is the point where really the horus heresy begins and this is the point where the new fiction begins yeah and they're explicit echoes of each other yeah for sure and in the in all in all the, the emperor uh leveled a continent <laughs> Like a whole continent, they just flattened it out. Like to give you a sense, like you think of parade and you think, yeah. oh, people march down the street. No, no an entire continent, every single space marine, every single captain, every single, you know, squaddy, like in ranks across a continent with titans and with, you know, all the dropships, the entire kind of uh, armada there mm-hmm. and, and the, the emperor at the very center of it, this enormous kind of martial celebration of, of what's, what's come to pass. And, uh, Goodman's just doing the same thing, isn't he? He's, he, They've yeah. got these huge kind of rollers going across and just flattening out this space. And, you know. This I actually I actually really like the book, and it's you know I've been really enjoying the Horus Heresy stuff, and obviously you know Warhammer knowledge Warhammer novel mileage varies. Mm. I think both based on personal preference, but also based on the quality of the books themselves. Um, I really liked this, and I, I one thing that struck me was uh, obviously there's interesting things about the Primaris specifically, but actually this made me interested in Gilliman. Mm. Whereas previously I wasn't because I, I guess I see the ultramarines as quite generic feeling sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And he is the kind of goody two shoes Primark in a lot of ways. So, hmm. you know, he's not even like of the good Primarchs. He's always seemed like the one with the fewest problems, <laughs> right? Like, you hmm. know, like the lion is a dickhead. Sanguinius might be a vampire. <laughs> um, vampirism. Like, um, F- Lehman Ross might be a werewolf. Yep. Um, we got that. Ferris Manus. Well, it's called Ferris Manus. It's, Fer- it's called Ferris Manus. Um, who else we got? Uh, we got uh, Rogel Dawn is chill, mm. but really likes to go into something called the pain glove when making <laughs> decisions. <laughs> sure. I didn't um, know that about him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The uh, Iron ha- uh, Imperial Fists are addicted to pain. Wow. Like they have this thing. They they clothe themselves in the pain glove so that they can experience more pain than they would ever experience on the battlefield. So they're not afraid of anything. Shake it off. Why? Nothing gives. They don't give a shit about anything. Basically, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, but that's how they make like uh, when uh, when Dawn. Because Dawn initially rejected the Codex Astartes, which was Gilliman's yeah. restructuring of the legions, so the Horus Heresy couldn't happen again. He rejected it, and they fell out. Hmm. And then he went off, sort of one lost a battle, spent some time in the pain glove, <laughs> and came out like, no, we do want to do this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the um, the Imperial Fists have a sort of Nurgle followers devotion to fucking themselves up, which yeah, is like, so yeah, they're all a bit fucked up. And then there's Gilliman in the middle, hmm. who's just like, it is like, he is the, yeah, he's the... Like the Michael from Arrested Development of the Primarchs. <laughs> <laughs> he actually wants to form a society. Uh, like he, and he, but at the same time, he's self aware and he knows that the Space Marines are not really the 
the body to do that. So he's, he's what's interesting about Dark Imperium is how he's going about trying to fix that. Mm. And the enormous culture war he's basically in with the Imperium, who still see him as a god often and worship him directly because he's the son of the emperor and who directly worship the emperor and Gilliman is like the emperor's just a bloke <laughs> yeah. a, he completely rejects that because he's from 30k he's from the era when the, the imperial truth was everything yeah he's met second. the emperor when the emperor was a man yeah, yeah. and he's just yeah no that's just my dad you know uh, and he, he comes up against this kind of uh, simpering sycophantic Im- imperium that's just uh, gone so deranged and so wrong and he's just desperately trying to find people with common sense <laughs> yeah but also on the flip side to that is they don't necessarily like they don't almost want to believe he is who he really is mm. like they sort of ignore all the things he says about the emperor not being a god yes like they're just like yeah that's nice you know whatever <laughs> go back to worshiping and there's a great description early on of the space battle where gilliman it, it's a good example of like why having a primarch is a big deal because he's like it's not just he's very big and strong and can punch people very hard it's you know he is sort of brilliant at a level like there's a lot of descriptions of how fast he can read mm. like he can just look at a book and it's done that's it like, yeah. um, he's basically the only person who can hold all of warhammer 40k 7th edition's rules in his head <laughs> at the same time <laughs> that's why he's a tactical master yeah um and there's like a bit early on where during a space battle it's because of the way his mind works he's able to see the refresh rate of an enemy's void shield mm. and just fire one shot that penetrates it rather yeah. than the six days of shots it would take normally. <laughs> and it's that stuff. Like, But he's filled the bridge of his particular ship with new technology made yeah, by yeah. Call. And there's a good description of all of the Mechanicus adepts just sort of walking around looking at it because it's heresy. It's yeah. all heresy. Mm. They've they've changed some of the designs. They're, they're using stuff that wasn't extracted from some ancient STC construct mm. 10 millennia ago. And, and they can't handle it. Like, there, they're like, very uncomfortable about it he's really he's delighted because they've got an eight percent efficiency boost out of the systems and yeah. uh, these tech priests are just kind of it, sh- screaming in their minds because everything has been turned upside down by this guy who just basically installed windows 10 for windows 8 yeah you know, he's <laughs> just going to give it a lock rate <laughs> uh, and they're freaking out about it which is uh I, that's a, a really cool point of friction in the new uh within the imperium yeah which is uh, you know obviously it's very literally represented by this the actual split in the imperium the giant warp scar across the galaxy and it's interesting as well because it um without without spoiling things because you haven't finished the book yet but like it doesn't it doesn't just bang the drum gilliman is right mm. like gilliman's lad have doubts about that stuff um particularly like he tried like particularly as he starts to because he's extremely rational almost to a fault yeah um and but he starts to try and figure out is there a rational case for the emperor being a god mm. like how do you define oh, god yeah. like you know because they can't deny that the emperor hid the truth of the chaos gods he can't deny that mm. so the truth of the chaos gods is, is manifestly true to him like yeah. they exist so could the emperor you know what i mean like mm, so sure. there's an interesting kind of struggle there yeah, like yeah. it's not necessarily particularly because even the marines he's dealing with are devout yeah there's a really nice I mean, this maybe brings us on to the stuff that might practically affect people in the game is uh gilliman is the person who wrote the codex astartes and that is the book if you are a space marine and you well not every chapter adheres to it but it, it is the process by which the legions were broken down into chapters and it dictates how how they structure themselves how they fight and it's an extremely rigid set of rules and it was designed by gilliman to prevent any one legion having the power that the legions had and therefore reducing the damage if there was ever another event like the heresy which it's successful in doing because whole chapters have gone to chaos but they're still in contention yeah yeah and they're not big enough to mm. turn half the imperium against itself again yeah and he's he's he knows chaos so well that he knows that chaos fights itself as well yeah. 
Uh, so that's one thing he constantly uses against the enemy. That's one of the ways he does it. And um, but the thing is that like and so that's an effective and like everything Gilliman does, like it's effective, very logical, very kind of cold and calculated practical bit of project management basically yeah spatial project management however ten thousand years later it's worshipped as basically a holy text by the chapters that adhere to it and he's changing it all the time mm. like he's come along and started to change it to match the new war that they're fighting and so his own commanders are very uncomfortable about the fact that like there's a description a bit deeper in the book as a primaris becomes a new ultramarines captain which makes him an 11th captain, which you can't have mm. in a, in a codex compliant chapter like the Ultramarines. And there's a good description of, I think it's Marnius Kalgar, who's the, was the chapter master of the Ultramarines, who is explicitly having to deal with some kind of professional, <laughs> what do you do when the big man comes back issues. <laughs> yes. Um, and he's like, he has to kind of just accept it as a matter of course, like, oh, I guess we have 11 companies now. <gasps> oh, okay. And like, and it's just like, cause it's just like, he has to accept that yeah. because the man who wrote the original book has done it, but. There's a brilliant, this is no spoilers, but there's a great bit later in the book of Marnie's Calgar looking very uncomfortably at Gilliman because Gilliman is sat in a big chair and they've had this big chair for 10,000 years. And it's basically a holy relic because it's Gilliman's chair from his <laughs> office. But to Gil- Gilliman, it's just a fucking chair. Yeah, it just yeah. happens to be a chair that's big enough for him. Mm. And so, and, and Calgar is smart enough to know that of course it's just a chair, but he can't shake that side of himself that's yeah. been around for hundreds of years, yeah. venerating every inch of ground that Gilliman walked on. And Gilliman's just a guy who doesn't believe any of it. Like, yeah, he comes back and uh, they've kept all of his quarters in his battleship completely as they were um, in that creepy way. It's all become a shrine. And then he's just walking around reading stuff and just throwing things around. He's got a tiny, like, common sense thinking room that he goes into, <laughs> uh, the, the, the rational room, which is, like, only slightly larger than him. <laughs> yeah. He goes in there just to get a like, fuck away. And explicitly, it's the only room in 40K that doesn't have, like, fucking filigree on yes, it. Like, yes. he's, he's, he's made a room for himself that isn't the most baroque cube imaginable yeah so he has somewhere to think because he yeah. hates the fashion of the era as well yeah. like he's, he has this kind of aesthetic disgust for the gothic uh affectations that the imperium has developed over the last ten thousand years mm. he thinks it's kind of gauche <laughs> yeah you know he just thinks it's just overworked it's you know it should be his battleship should be clean there's a bit later on where he laughs at a statue of himself <laughs> really? yeah. that's awesome um like <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, and so all that stuff I think has made Gilliman a much more compelling character yes, cause, uh, because also the nice thing about it is it's also uh, he knows because he's so logical and rational, sees so things very clearly mm. that he's not the most powerful Primarch. He's probably the least. Mm. Like his every Primarch has a thing. Like Magnus is the best psyker, um, Mortarian is the master of death when it comes to himself as well. So he's just supernaturally durable. Mm. Lehman Russ is you know ferocious. All the rest of the stuff and Gilliman is like he's literally the 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 one with a bit of perspective, which is the lamest thing. To be. <laughs> right, that's a superpower. And like, he's not the most charismatic. Mm. And it's when he realizes that he kind of has to be Horus. Like he has to be the war master. Like yeah, he, yeah. that's his new role. Mm. He has to be like what Horus could have been, but there's all those dangers with that come with being Horus. Yeah. yeah. Quite centralized power. That one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but he has to centralize power. Like there's loads of really interesting meditations. If you're into, the bureaucracies of the mad space empire <laughs> yeah and absolutely that i think is really interesting even um he's introducing you know amazing new concepts such as what if if someone's ill or injured 
you send them back to be treated in hospital so they can come back into the fight. That's like a generational shift for the Imperium where yeah. they thought, well, if you're dead, you know, why would we expend fuel on shipping you back to a hospital planet? Uh, and I think it's called Gulliman's Mercy or something. Gulliman's Mercy, yeah. That's it. Which is just basic hospital care yeah, for, exactly. for Astra Militarum members, which is, you know, that's a funny point. It shows you how dark things have gotten yeah. and dark things still are. Well, I think that's one of the things more broadly that's interesting to me about 40k, like why I like it as a, as a sci-fi setting, mm. independent of the games and the models and things that I enjoy about it. Because it is explicitly silly and, and it's, you know, I think how seriously you can take it uh, is is limited in some senses by how it's evolved out of so many different things that, you know, it's full of 2000 AD comics and Michael Moorcock and, and mad names that people thought were funny in, in a room in 1993. And so that guy's called that forever and, and this stuff. But I think the thing that's fundamentally interesting about it is, um, it shows a world that is fucking awful from the point of view of people who live there for whom that is normal. Mm. And if it's about anything, it seems to be about how much shit can become normal. <laughs> right. Like, and there's so many, like, one of the interesting things about the way the Imperium functions is even though it's always on the edge of destruction, it's always expanding. Mm. Planets get destroyed all the time. They destroy their own planets. Billions of people die all of the time because the one thing that isn't a precious resource in the 41st millennium is human life. Mm. Like it's sort of, if it's an apocalyptic scenario for any particular reason, and it's basically an apocalyptic scenario for all of them, because every kind of apocalypse has happened in 40k. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an overpopulation apocalypse. Mm. It's like the, human life is just completely abundant. Every, it's everywhere and it's constantly happening and it just multiplies, and multiplies, and multiplies, and multiplies. And there are colony ships going out every single hour and founding new colonies and they grow up and become hive mega worlds because mm. the timescale is so large. And so no one thinks twice about human life really who's who's in any position of power and everyone else's life is kind of brutal and short and kind of merciless and, and cold and that is a pretty it's grim obviously that's kind of what the setting is but i don't think it's like i don't think it's inhuman i think it's just interesting how how impersonalized it becomes because you take this idea and i think it's also one of the other ways to think about how like sexless the 40k universe is because yeah. it is a lot of like space marines are infertile you know they don't have and they don't have sexual desire either so they're just sort of and they're all men who um have come up with their own sort of form of uh like love with each other like there's a lot of talk of like brotherly love and, and like brothers, yeah. yeah but it's not even you know but it's not it's not even it's not momentary it's like genuine love mm. like there's a sort of like kind of strange platonic um naivety to space marines because they have no sexual function at all they mm. don't feel it they don't think it they don't you know what i mean they're just you know, they're like Kendalls or brute murderous, <laughs> really hyper religious Kendalls. Yeah. But, um, mm. but I think one of the things that sort of, I don't think, I, I don't think it's the reason that the 40k setting is so sexless. I think that has to do with where it comes from mm. as a piece of fiction to serve, to serve a game. But I think one of the things that kind of allows it to become part, an interesting theme is that like at, at, at the distance remove it is from, human life where it's human life is just so abundant and so it's like individual acts of like sex or romance mean basically nothing in that setting because mm. it's happening all the time everywhere and it just happens off camera to fill up another planet with problems <laughs> like yeah it's an interesting take on the post scarcity society which you normally yeah. read as being you know a time of hedonism and uh but in a, a good way where you know possessions mean less and you know people are more free to go and do whatever they want because there's infinite space and infinite resources to do so yeah but this is a yeah this is an interesting take on what might actually happen where 
people don't have to be good to each other really at all. There's no kind of cultural cash or or worth in setting up a society that um, actually cares for anyone. Yeah. (laughs) It's best to, better, it's better to create a bureaucracy that creates weapons faster because that's, you know, there's an existential threat on your doorstep all the time. Mm. And that's, that's, that threat squashes all kind of room there is for empathy or for any, you know, it's it's a tremendously wasteful system that uses people as fuel. Mm. But no one spares a thought for the, they have no way of making more efficient. No. So that, those, the vast human waste isn't even considered. But what's happened in 40k is that the very con, this, what's interesting about Gilliman's bringing this back is that they've lost the concept of what life outside of war would be like. They just, it doesn't mm. exist for them. Like they couldn't conceive of it. And when Gilliman starts thinking about that stuff, it's just, it's heretical thought because, you know, anything you're doing that isn't, part of a war effort though Gilliman does massively kick up war effort like he's able to introduce concepts such as like mercy in hospitals and you know that type of support that you know tech priests could not even understand why you would do that yeah. the, the implants in a person are worth more than the person and it also helps to obviously chaos is a deeply like it's explicitly magical force and that's one of the things that sets it aside like the thing that makes chaos not another alien threat is that other alien threats are part of the same kind of endless cycle of material consumption and war as everyone else mm. and chaos is just out beyond all of it they don't adhere to the laws of physics they mm. they just you know they don't they don't give a shit about anything because they're not from this reality and this reality is a plaything. Mm. but they also all represent sort of like human qualities that don't all have everything to do with war necessarily right that's like mm. you know like creativity um, and art yeah creativity are like i mean i suppose corn is the very martial one yeah but even that has things you know to do with like you know passion and proving yourself as an individual which doesn't mean a lot in that yeah. setting you know nurgle's all to do with sort of accepting things that come your way and just ending mm. you know what i mean mm. like sort of decaying and ending slanesh is sort of like excessive pleasure which has no role in that society at all mm. seems is all about hope which and wanting to change the situation you're in which is blasphemy mm. so they all you know what i mean there's, there's sort of an interesting tension in why chaos might be appealing to people yeah definitely the, you can see the temptation you can see why people would go that way given mm. the, would you live in a hive world or you know would you uh go along with some plague marines and you know yeah, like Nurgle's gifts as they come. And yeah, you're going to end up a, a big old pile of buboes <laughs> vomiting flies out of your bum forever. Yeah. But at least you don't have to work in a factory until you get squashed in a big gear and no one notices. <laughs> <laughs> the two fates that await you in 40k, basically. Exactly. Did a... It's a way to ignore the means of production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a side turn into a tentacle, <laughs> which is uh, it's a good way out. A lot of that stuff is stuff that's just sort of about 40k generally, which I think they're doing a good job of yeah. zooming in on. Um, some of the things that I think the book introduces that are super interesting. Some of the things it introduces and moves past. Mm. Um, but it might be worth talking about the Primaris specifically, because mm. if people were a bit unsure about the way they introduced the Primaris and the notion that they're being, they are new space marines from under the ground, that, <laughs> and there are 10,000 of them. They were here all along. Um, there's a couple of key facts. Um, one is that obviously enough time has passed that Primaris have been on multiple campaigns, things like that. The other is that a lot of the people who would become Primaris were sort of seconded from the regular Space Marine recruitment mm. system during the heresy right. or just after the heresy. So a lot of Primaris, like Space Marines don't tend to remember who they were before anyway, because they are extensively brainwashed and given new personalities. Yes. But the ones that have some sense of it, knew which planet they were from, that kind of thing. Um, remember the Imperium as it was. So they have some of Gilliman's mm, sense of things. Interesting. Um, the other side of it is that, um, 
they are all a lot more like their Primarchs than modern Marines are. Mm. A bit more like Heresy Era Marines because they're from a purer strain right. of the Gene Seed. So they, they display their Primarchs kind of ten- tendencies more more outwardly. Right. Um, and a super interesting thing that is mentioned, and this is a really interesting hook for the future, is that, uh, again, no huge spoilers or anything, but at one point in the book, Belisarius Call, who created the Primaris Marines on Gilliman's orders, basically sends Gilliman a text saying, am I allowed to make Primaris Marines with all of the other gene seeds? Mm. As in all of the traitor Primarchs yes. and the two missing Primarchs. Wow. He has all of them. He has all 20. So he says, can I, cause he, and it doesn't say it like that. He basically lists the, the, the legion numbers. Cause he says, we have Primarchs, we have Primaris for these, these legions. And it's the eight loyalist legions. And then he asks, I'm ready to go into production on the other, on these ones. And it's like two and 11 and two and 11 are the missing ones. Right. Um, 15, so thousand sons, like, mm. lo- like loads of them. Wow, shit. And, and, and Gilliman is like, absolutely not. <laughs> but Call's argument is that it was the Primarchs that fell, not the Marines. Yes. And the Emperor intended the 20 to work together. Mm. And they were designed to fight together and to combine the, the various strengths of the Emperor, because each represent different parts of the Emperor mm. to be brought together. So the Primarchs aren't complete without all 20. Yeah. Which is a super interesting That's really hook. cool. That's really cool. Like, and that like it's a really interesting potential space for it to go and actually what it reminds me more than anything else of is the bit in age of sigmar where sigmar starts reclaiming chaos marines right. so, sorry reclaiming chaos heroes yes as, Sig- as stormcast mm. it's a similar kind of existential problem mm. like existing marines are not going to accept like Brannosaurus call saying, I've made some good world eaters. Yeah. And yeah. they're best friends with space wolves because they're basically the same. And there's, especially when they, you know, they're exhibiting all of those, uh, traits that you'd associate with heresy now. So the, mm. the, the bloodlust would be interpreted not as a strength in their, in part of their design, but actually as a manifestation of the chaotic, chaotic nature of their primarch. Yeah. Um, which is a bit unfair perhaps, but yeah, that's particularly because really the space wolves aren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're exactly. the same, but you know, you know, yeah. You yeah, taste it's a super interesting it's idea, and like yeah, it's, it's, really cool. it's given me some interesting thoughts. Uh, so the other idea this ties into, so Gilliman shuts that down, mm. as you might expect him to do. But the thing he doesn't shut down is um, he the way he introduces the Primaris initially, which is uh, called uh, battalions that become known as Grey Shields, which are essentially they're not chapters; they exist outside of the kind of chapter ecosystem. Oh, cool! Uh, you must have hit these already in the yes, book. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and they are mixed units of Primaris mm. where each pri- individual Primaris wears their Primarch's livery, but with like a gray chevron over it, which mm. is why they're called gray, gray shields. But the, and the idea is to get m- Marines from different gene lines used to fighting with each other so that they cooperate better and they respect each other more when they meet in the future. Mm. And this is Gilliman's idea, which yeah. is a really good idea. Yes, for sure. Like, and so. But, um, during the course of the book, the last of the Grey Shield regiments are disbanded because after Grey Shields have fought together for a while, they then take the individual gene, like, uh, space marines of specific gene lines and assign them to either existing chapters or new founding chapters based on that gene line. Yeah. So space wolves go back to being space wolves and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but they'll have this experience having fought with their brethren. Yeah. But it's a really interesting idea for an army. Yeah. Like, definitely. If you wanted to paint every single Primaris different. Do the Grey Shields army, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Huh, that's super um, cool. and it's a super cool kind of, um, again, kind of heretical progressive concept. Mm. The way it's written is kind of, 
it's a bit on the nose because again they're a lot more like their primarchs so like the space wolf one is like all viking all the time and the iron hands one is just in his room grafting a new metal arm to himself and the the like the blood angel one is literally just composing poetry in his head as he falls from space <laughs> um because you know it's still silly in 40k mm. but yeah i really like that um it does a really good job of um, describing them as well like mm. It sounds like, cause it sounds like the book was written as the kind of miniatures range was being put together with some information and some, some not. But one of the things is that like the inceptors sound like that's kind of like a standard way for Primaris to fight. Yeah. Like they don't use drop pods anymore. They just fall from just space. Bit, right. Yeah. Which is kind of rad. Yeah. The description of them, um, that drop from space is brilliant actually at the very start of that book. Yeah. And the, um, description of the repulsor tanks also oh, dropping yeah, from space. Yeah, like that's fantastic. Just... Oh, that image is so awesome. They actually just come in for space and then at the very last minute is boom, the repulsors yeah. come on and they just sort of almost crash to the ground and come back up with the bolters blazing and, you know, Primaris behind them. Um, I can't wait to have those tanks. I think they're transports for Primaris, aren't they? I don't think they are. Uh, I don't think Primaris get transports. Yeah. Okay. They're just, it's too big. Cause they don't fit in rhinos. No, they're huge. The, um, bigger than a rhino. The, um, there's a great description of a chaos space marine who's never seen a repulsor tank before, tries to dive underneath it to <laughs> throw a grenade under it. Yeah. And he just gets immediately flattened, like into a paste. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, also in the book, um, there's mentions of a whole bunch of Primaris that probably hints at the range to come. And this is maybe our segue mm-hmm. to the next thing. Cause, um, it seems very likely right now that space marines are going to be next month's big thing for 40k, that they're going to get their own codex and that they're going to get, uh, new units, obviously, cause there's bits of the Primaris range yet to kind of be, revealed like equivalents so i wrote them down as they happened in the book so um there's the overlord which is the new thunderhawk basically it's a i don't think they'll do a model for it short of forge world but Mm. it's it's the you know it's it carries 40 so it's sort of storm stormbird kind of scale um but it's looks apparently looks more like a giant corvus black star if you know what that looks like from the death watch range so it's like a kind of love that ship yeah i love it as well it's really cool um aggressors which are in gravis armor which is the same as the captain which is kind of the new terminator armor yeah um they have missile racks on the backs and then flamers on each arm oh awesome so that's that sounds rad (laughs) yep um the uh primaris librarians which are called Mm, lexicanum just because they needed another latin word for (laughs) that yep Um, and reavers which are uh spelled r-e-i-v-e-i-s which are basically Primaris scouts. Mm. They are like close quarter specialists with like, um, skull masks. Wow. And like one big, uh, like close quarters pauldron. So mm. if you, if you imagine a space marine needed a bigger shoulder pad, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they have one big shoulder pad basically. Oh, that's cool. I was wondering what their assault option would be because they're a very long range army. Yeah. Well, I think, I think they're going to be the scout variant. Yeah. I think their assault option will be a variant on inceptors. I think it'll be an inceptor version with, with yeah, that makes sense. Big punchy fists dropping from space. Yeah. Chain swords. Um, and yeah, there's loads of interesting stuff in it. So like, I don't think I'd recommend read it on, on the strength of its novel on its own, but I think if you're kind of excited about new 40 K it's worth reading just to get up to speed. Cause it's sort of, yeah, I think it's interesting because I think the book is a little bit meandering and lacks a bad guy or a kind of purpose. Yeah. It also loses, it doesn't lose its way, Mm. but it, it, it certainly doesn't have an arc within itself it feels like the beginning of a big story yeah it's sort of satisfying as a beginning that branches off into future things potentially as a standalone novel i don't know you think of it as um a kind of like a a, a whole book of codex flavor text which just gives you the background of the, and the kind of the base layer that you can mm. start thinking about the hobby from rather than as kind of like a riveting story in, in and of itself yeah still very cool though 
I really, I really like what they've done with it. They've made Space Marines interesting again. Yeah. And there's lots of, and again, they've created lots of space for future things. Like mm. they established in the book that the Primaris specifically are quite naive about chaos. Hmm. And that's one thing that gives the old Space Marines an edge is the Space Marines that have been fighting chaos for hundreds and hundreds of years mm. and have rigorously protected themselves in their chapters from it are much more take it much more seriously like the primaris are guilty of being like well just shoot it and like i got a bit angry it's fine and <laughs> right, like yeah. and whereas and so it doesn't it doesn't go totally like what it what i like about it is it doesn't have a load of like basically like secular marines show up the point in life at the religious marines yeah who and then and for them to be totally right about everything and just better at everything and bigger and fightier and everything else like the marines have been around a long time like there's um there are some primaris librarians but there are a lot of like old marine chaplains and librarians with the primaris units because yeah. they kind of need them mm. because they're surrounded by chaos all the time and they don't know how to deal with it and there's a lot of the librarians going like just don't look at that hand that's, holding that's, <laughs> like hand, hand holding basically yeah, exactly through, like, through the apocalypse sun yeah that's that's a bad thing and if you look at it too long you will turn into mushrooms so like you know um that's really cool i love uh, it's interesting that they there's going to be a librarian equivalent for the Primaris, mm. uh, especially because, you know, uh, Gulliman went through the whole band psycho phase of uh, the 30k arc. And yeah. there seems to be okay with it now. Sort of. Well, he he says in the book, and it's a, it was very satisfying to me to read, mm. he kind of, he sees what happened in, he, he thinks that basically the Council of Nikea was probably a mistake, mm. as in banning psychos, because there's no reason... Because he basically he says explicitly he thinks his ba- his dad's bad decision making made Magnus an enemy, right? Rather than the other way around. Yeah, like, he's completely right about that. Yeah, because <laughs> um, he's already encountered Magnus. He encounters Magnus in Gathering Storm. He knows Magnus is still around. Yeah, his focus now is Mortarian, um, but like he doesn't necessarily see Magnus as an out and out enemy, mm. which is interesting. Yeah, the Thousand Sons don't kind of want to be Chaos Marines, so there's like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's sort of, or at least he does, but he understands why that happened and he doesn't see it as Magnus's mistake. Obviously mm. some parts of it are Magnus's mistake, but like the, the bit where he grew wings and killed loads of space marines after, after the fact, it was, you know. Yeah. He, he, he did really double down. <laughs> he really did. They tend to in chaos. So I think once you go over to chaos, that's in for a penny, it? in for a pound, Absolutely. I say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I think that was kind of, like, again, it's just down to earth Gilliman going like, well, we fucked up. Yeah. Like, so there, he's more open to it, but yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of exciting, like seeing where, where it's all going. And, mm. and, um, one interesting thing is that, so people have been doing pictures, including his workshop of, uh, Blood Raven Primaris, um, which are, um, Blood Ravens being the chapter from the Dawn of War games, but very popular. Mm. But that's an interesting question because famously they don't know who their Primarch is. No. Um, mm. and that's cool being up to. Yeah. So this trick. is a super interesting idea because basically they don't know who their Primarch is, but the, one of the plot points is that everyone gets Primaris from their own chapter. So if you're a Dark Angel, you get the lion's mm. genes in your Primaris Marines. However, there are a million hints across both heresy books and in other sources that the Blood for Infants are a Thousand Sons successor chapter. Mm. That's why they have so many librarians. Um, one of the Thousand Sons cults is called the Corvidae, which is basically, you know, ravens. Hmm. And one of them in one of the Horus Heresy books has a vision of like the future of the chapter being a raven covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, it's pretty telling. Yeah. So, but, you know, if they're doing um, Blood Ravens Primaris, is Gilliman just secretly making them big, big red men on the sly? Yeah, or Call is just kind of, maybe it's the second. Oh, no, oh yeah, Call would be Call, cool, sorry. 15, is it 15th? The, uh, yeah, 15th Legion, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll take some 
So that 15th Legion juice. I'm just making Brood Ravens, don't worry. Yeah, it. It's exactly. all legit. It's all above board. Don't worry, Gilliman, it's fine. Yeah, and they're all red. Like, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that colour scheme works so well on Primaris as it well. It does. I, I considered it, but because of that particular bit of lore jank, mm. I'm not going to commit. Okay. Yeah, you don't know where that's going to be, how that's going to be resolved, I suppose, in future yeah. books and stuff. So actually, that maybe brings us out of out of the extended lore phase, but it is, it's good. It's good lore. Ah, it's good lore. What are your... 40k plans given that we've both gone from being age of sigma players exclusively to being like <laughs> let's do all of this now yeah let's play all the systems uh yeah i'm I, i'm gonna create a mechanism force definitely um but i think it's going to be like a quite a small one and because you can be so flexible now with the way you structure your armies in 40k i'm going to like basically take a lot of different bits of the imperium and combine them all into a ragtag a uh, bunch of people defending a forge world on the dark imperium side of the great rift um so i that let me have like some really cool skitarii and admech and then some a few assassins and then a few primaris that happen to have made it across and uh, the idea would be that their their system is just o- almost consumed by this warp cloud and openings appear once every decade or two decades and so the, the imperium can kind of sneak in the odd thing and they can sneak messages out but it's a very fragmented and difficult uh, situation where all these different mm. imperium forces have to work together uh, and i envisage it envisage it being like very dark kind of color schemes for them and just very kind of stripped down because they don't have the tools that would necessarily let them embellish themselves as much as they normally would so lots of gray brown cloaks just normal cloaks straight off the factory line for the skitarii so they almost look like wastelanders or something mm. because they just don't have the materials to you know paint them bright cells bright red like the martians would um and then the primaris coming in like being massively scratched up and, and maybe you could do them with gray shields that would also be almost be too colorful i kind mm. of want them to be almost just like metal you just, could do you could do the gray shields as like metal but with like one shoulder pad in yeah the color of their primarchs that's a cool like that. idea i could get like some transfers and stuff and get you know maybe one one pauldron could have like a space well if you get the the box comes with it comes with primaris transfers for ultramarines blood angels dark angels and space wolves no oh, that's cool so oh, that's awesome. gives you a basis at least yeah and i could you could take those accent colors from those spaces so the, the dark angels guy can have like a knee pad that's mm. um also has the number on of his kind of original squad or whatever uh, but they could otherwise be like uh gray or dark metal and then they would also fit in with this katari and look as though they were unified um even though they they come from these disparate parts i, lo- I like the idea of them having to work together and in my head the, the interesting yeah. relationships that would form from these people who don't really have orders because they're not getting orders through the warp uh, they get like one thing will come in uh, in t- in 10 years and they'll have to interpret that however they can to try and stay alive and you know try and mm, follow really cool idea. um so and it also it gives you loads of um, scope for fighting stuff because stuff's coming out of the war but all the time and so that it also lets me just pick the models i want to paint <laughs> selfishly and mm. um uh, i'm really excited about that yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna come up with a name for the forge world a name for the system and start thinking about like who the main characters are and who the the main who who's actually in charge it's probably not gonna be the primaris i think they're going to be useful support but i think it's probably going to be a a, a, a grand tech priest or some, some description mm. Mm. that's rad that's really cool how about you chris you got any ideas? so i i have my demons for zinch mm-hmm. that's that's the thing um and i'm gonna be working on them next anyway for aos so that's a army off the bat that i can try and actually um there's a lot of things about the way the demon rules work in 40k that I really want them to find some... It's not going to happen because Seench got a book in Age of, Age of Sigma this year. Yeah. But I really prefer their interpretations because it's not just like, here's the same unit in a different system. It's the same model, but like, in some cases, reimagined a bit. Um, 
So like the things I, I want to play with it basically, because it sounds like it could be really fun and that might just be the direction I end up going in. Cause, um, there are good rules for horrors splitting, which has been a nightmare to figure yeah. out how that should work. It's, in Age of Sigmar. Works, it's, it's, um, they've just, it's kind of how I think they'll change summoning rules in Age of Sigmar in, right. in the next general's handbook, but it just solves the problem of, cause in Age of Sigmar, you have to pay the cost of a unit whenever you increase the max size of that unit, which means that splitting pink horrors, unless you house rules, it has like an exponential points cost because they just keep the blue horrors that you create out of the pink horrors just keep getting bigger. Mm. And that means you pay for the full unit every time, which makes it completely impractical. Yeah. Whereas in, in 40k, you just pay once for the unit and then the unit can increase up to its maximum size, but you've paid for the unit, which is sensible. Sensible. Mm. Um, but there's other things like, um, screamers seem a lot better and I love those models and I love the kind of idea of them. Yeah. Like, like Sinchi and Hell Manta Ray bats that, mm. you know, pour out of holes in the warp. Um, the rules for flamers are a lot cooler generally. Um, flamers are strong in Age of Sigma, but they're almost like an artillery unit. Yeah. Whereas in 40k, they're much more explicitly like, um, like a close range thing. Like they're like flamethrowers, they're like flying flamethrowers. Mm. So, they have the pistol rule, which means they can fire into combat close range. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, they have two different versions of their own flame, but whether they're doing close range or long range, so they can be a sort of a barrage, but then like mm. do things at close range. I'm guessing they hit automatically with those, those flame yeah, attacks indeed. as well. So, yeah. Which is really no, exciting. Neat. And um, like I think the Lord of Change is more exciting in Age of Sigma because Age, Age of Sigma has more interesting spells yeah. generally. Mm. Um but, you know, it seems like a kind of cool set of things. So that, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> and also, you don't really need fluff for Zinch mm. Demon Legions. They just they come just out of the warp. Aren't they? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they'd be a perfect foil for your Mechanicum, because if you're trapped mm. in the warp all the time, that's going to happen. Yeah. Like, Demon Incursions are going to happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Daily, daily menace. Um, and, yeah, so they seem like it could be fun. And in any case, I'm working on those models anyway, so I might as well play with them a few times. Mm. Um, I One thing I would like to do is I would like to make a codex compliant space reinforce because i like the idea of following a rule like mm. following a system yeah however because gilliman is work- changing the codex all the time i'm going to wait before deciding on a chapter i'm going to wait until the new space marine codex is out to see what it says because mm. it might be that there's a new founding chapter that i love the color scheme for or the fiction hook or whatever it is yeah, and i decide to do something that's completely new to the setting um, or it might be that something changes substantially about the Codex Astartes, about how it's implemented for Primaris specifically. Mm. That means, so I'm going to wait and see. The top level idea at the moment is I'd quite like to do the, I'd like to do Imperial Fists, so the yellow guys, as, um, and probably their fifth company that has the black shoulder pad trims, mm. um, because that company was wiped out in the really bad straight to DVD Ultramarines movie. <laughs> so the company's gone. So if it hasn't been refounded in the last 150 years, it makes sense that it would be one of the Primaris yes. companies. Mm. Um, I, but watched, it, I watched that movie recently, by the way. Yeah. I rewatched it when I was in a, it's, it doesn't hold up. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I got a lot more out of it as, uh, you know, having come back mm. into the, the law. Like I, I, I gave it a pass for a lot of the things I, I didn't at the time. We saw it in the cinema, didn't we? Mm. Um, yeah, we went to the press showing of it. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, but nonetheless, right? So you know the yes, Imperial yeah, Fists and that, they get really badly fucked up. They do. With their chapter, basically. They do. That's and cool. I had the idea of them almost being like Primaris, but because that particular, that particular, uh, ultimate, uh, Imperial Fists company is called the Heralds of Truth. Mm. And I really like the idea of that. And they, they have the sort of more religious kind of ritual object guarding role mm. in, in the version they are in them, in the bad movie. <laughs> 
but I quite like the idea that that almost mutates into like heralds of imperial truth, and like you have like a sort of expeditionary imperial fists force of primaris that don't necessarily adhere to the religious strictures of them, of the of the imperium that much, mm. but are kind of a, 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 but are a codex compliant chapter kind of learning that side of things. Yeah. Um, but then I was thinking about mixing that in with possibly some like sisters of silence or something like that, so they have sort of both sides of the Imperium represented in one force, but we'll see. I might do something completely different because mm. I just want to see what happens with that fiction rather than commit to it straight away. Um, and then I still have the night household idea that I don't, I mentioned on the pod, the, the, the sea creature battling Pacific Rim yeah. knights, yeah, um, which is an idea that I might still might do. Um, I've, we'll get onto this probably pretty soon. We talk about what we've been up to, but I've, painted um test units for death guard mm. and i loved painting them and so that might steer me that way yeah a bit like i might stick with chaos but maybe do some nerdly stuff because i'd like to see how they play i think i'd be interested in seeing how they play and i've got the units in the box so i'll paint those up and, mm. and see if i enjoy got that blow drone as well yeah they're just such good models yeah, fantastic um so we'll see i'm sort of sit, i'm going to stay on the fence i mean I, I i stayed on the fence while still buying the big box right but i know i ultimately will want everything in that it's just exactly what i do with, with yeah, all the different yeah. parts i guess the primaries are the hard part aren't they that's where yeah you, yeah so I've, I've committed to i've committed to a particular color scheme for the nurgle which is actually because i knew what i wanted to do which is going to be closer to the heresy color scheme of like white or bone yeah so i've done that but like a darker, dirtier bone color because it's been ten thousand years and they don't take care of their gear um but there's actually a color scheme in the little death guard codex that comes with the core set uh, and it shows you alternate versions that are called corpse makers which is pretty much bang on what i wanted to do oh, cool. and it's neat because their whole thing is they are trying to they see it as their duty to kind of eat away at and defile all of the edifices of the imperium um almost like rot mm. and i had this idea of like i like the idea of like a moth as a sigil of nurgle like the idea of like a moth in your cupboard but like all your stuff decays you know what i mean there's, there's sort of like because a lot of insects with nurgle yeah i like the idea of sort of a moth as a sort of on a standard or something like that yeah, this idea awesome. of like sort of like sense of decay and also that kind of like color scheme that you associate with moths like they're kind of like sickly white mm. and, and sort of and purples and grays and that those kinds of colors rather than the kind of traditional kind of bright green or gore or that kind of thing yeah so the sense of sort of um like a kind of slow decay um entropy setting in over time things drying out and kind of going cold and also then if i end up doing imperial fists they are a naturally opposed force because imperial fists are the fortress builders hmm. and the people who throw up those edifices so having those two forces so naturally philosophically opposed to each other would be kind of yeah that's kind of neat oh that's sweet so yeah so what have you been up to this month tom good question i mean i've uh, finished up um my unit of space walls for prospero uh, which we'll talk about the battle later mm. Um, I've still got, got the big gold dudes to do, but I feel like the, the hard part's over, to be honest. And I'm, uh, I had fun painting them, but I'm glad that I don't have to paint any more of them ever. Yeah. You played a couple of games this month. I did actually. Not? Yeah. I played, um, uh, me and my friend Chimp played, uh, a game where we adapted the second skirmish scenario for a full size, for a 1000 point battle. That was the one we discussed last month. With yeah. The treasure hunting mm. mechanic. Where you, there are certain points on the battlefield, and if you have people near them, you can roll a six each turn to see if it turns into a, see if they find treasure and it turns into a control point, basically. Um, so we uh, we cut down the number of control points to four, and had them in the compass points positions with with the, and had the centre be a garden of more, which is a piece of scenery, um, DW piece of scenery. And uh, I was running uh, with Stormcast, 
and Chimp was running with uh, his flesh eaters caught, including a, including a Morn Ghoul. And it's the first time I really fought one. <laughs> and holy crap, that thing's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. It's a, it's a, a Forge World model. And it's an enormous, like, uh, probably eight inch tall, uh, ghost that's just a screaming head and two arms. And one of the arms is crushing a horse to death underneath mm. it. And that's how it's kind of standing up. Um, and he charged into the middle and I tried to block it with aether wings, <laughs> which are these, <laughs> uh, tiny, beautiful birds that the Stormcast have. And I just had some spare points. So I just bought some aether wings to see if he, they, you know, they could just block. Uh, they did not block anything. <laughs> he, just, he just ate them. And every time he eats stuff, he gets wounds back. Uh, and every time he rolls sixes, he gets more attacks. And if those are sixes, then they do mortal wounds and he just, he absolutely wrecked everything. Um, so all of my stormcast ended up piling into this Morgul. It flew across the table. It can go through anything. It's, eth- it's ethereal. It, it has an invulnerable save and rend doesn't work against it. So you just like, all my stormcast was hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. My relicter very slowly kind of ambled over and electrocuted it and it was still going and still going. But on the other side, I have my new Vanguard hunters who are the kind of cloaked, uh, warriors, rangers that stormcast have and they come on, on a different board edge and try to threaten that uh, point to the opposite side of the board. Um, and it, in the end, it came down to, uh, I was losing the whole time because Jim managed to activate a point in his own, uh, part of the board. And on the very last roll of the fifth turn, which is the end of the game, I managed to activate a different point that I happened to be standing on. And it was like one of my last three storm casts was just near it. And they rolled a six and it, it so it lit up and it was a draw. <laughs> uh, so it was one point each. Uh, and I took down the morning call as well. One of, um, one of my archers shot it. Uh, just an ordinary archer somehow shot a ghost to death uh but it was it was really fun and, and we used the new mat uh that games workshop put out which is kind of like a graveyard um battle mat and we put down loads of uh gun more terrain so it was all properly theming and looked absolutely fantastic it was mm. a really great game and a really great piece of kind of it's what AIS is so good at this, just creating loads of stories in the game. Even, you know, you can argue back and forth about how competitive it is and stuff, but I'll always remember that Mongol just tearing through my, my dudes and then, mm. you know, my, my one, like, lib or someone who just found some treasure and managed to scrape a draw from the, you know. You're definitely getting a line in the single hero judicator the same yeah, today. They, they are really good. Uh, and they just, they, they always manage to, there's, there's two things that always happen with my army. There's always one liberator surrounded by like loads of chaff that yeah. are about to eat him. That happens all the time. It happens all the time against them, um, flesh eater court because they have, um, they're these, they're ghouls basically. So they've got loads of huge ghoul units. And it's fun to use my rangers. Um, I've not used them before. They're kind of, they're not very impactful, but they're very mobile and kind of interesting for objective grabbing. And those models are fantastic. I've actually, that's been my main painting project this mm. month. I've been painting those guys up. Um, so I've done five of them up to kind of photography standard pretty much. Um, so I'm probably going to photograph those against the white background, send them into white dwarf so you can get into the reader pages. Um, which is kind of my, my goal for the year is to get into the reader pages of white dwarf. I sent some stuff a while ago. Yeah. But they have like a three month lead time on the magazine. I now know. Yes. So yeah. I think it's worth bearing in mind. And also it's, um, knowing how, um, having worked on magazines and stuff, like knowing how they lay stuff out, there's every chance that a model won't get in if they just don't have the right size mm. slot on the page and that stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm going to, I think painting, um, having that as a goal is just enough to push me a bit extra to mm. not cut corners and to do a better job. Uh, but that was, that was really fun. I mean, I don't know if we can do painting phase separately or if we're just going to talk about 
painting. We should we should uh, go into what we've been painting now, I guess, because you know, yeah, it's kind of like because I haven't I haven't actually played a game this month, apart from what we will talk about in a minute. So, yeah. Um, but lots of painting. So you've also so what were the hunters like to paint? Because they're quite a lot more detail intense and like yeah. uh, material <laughs> varied than regular stormcast they were really fun to paint because of that because it's you know they're they're gold as well as other things they've got fur on them they've got like uh, a painted the, the kind of straps on their belts is like leather like black leather and put a lot more black on them than the 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 games workshop actually so um their capes the inside of their capes is black with gold trim mm. so actually like it was a trice of free hands and trim for which was came out okay which is better than it's ever come out before when i tried <laughs> to do that uh, so i see that's progress um they've got loads of like little gems on and stuff and the big thing i've uh learned this month is that gloss washes are really really great for uh, metallics and for mm. lots of different purposes um so the washes are always obviously like transparent shade but these dry uh, in a shiny to a shiny effect which is brilliant if you're going for a stormcast type of gold which is supposed to be this blazing you know shining armor then you may you get to put loads of kind of warm depth into the color and shade the metallic without actually dulling the metallic down into mm. a matte so they look um like they're so reflective <laughs> it's crazy like how bright they are when 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 you look at them in real life especially if it's you know it's light coming in through a window like they look really really shiny um so with, with them and my long strikes i think my gold painting has gone to a different level and uh, now i just look back in sorrow at the rest of the stormcast <laughs> i painted last year and like why can i do i should have done this for all of those hundreds of models but it was still really good. Really had really had fun painting them. Uh, and what's what they kind of really rammed home for me was what I, I think I said this last month, where you can take a, a model out of any AOS army and it looks like a hero in and of itself, which is why skirmish works so well. Mm. Like if you take any one of those uh, Vanguard Hunter models and told me that it was a, a general of an army in the, the last the last edition, I would completely believe you. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, point. It's as uh, embellished and as kind of. Uh, impactful and mighty looking and the posing is great on them um it, it's, it's if you've got an army full of models that are as good as hero models from the last edition and that's a big cool thing to have happened to that range so they, they, the ranges are not about rank and file anymore they're about these big crazy concepts that each can stand yeah. on their own and that's the big thing that aos has done it's not about pike men anymore it's about dwarves with top hats <laughs> and jetpacks and jetpacks on balloons uh, yeah yeah you've also done some star drake stuff made some progress yeah i was uh, so i've built the sec the alternative head for the star drake which is a slightly goofy kind of closed mouth version um so it's looking for a color scheme really and i've kind of come up blank really uh so i was going for a kind of calgar blue type thing and i was going to do a two-tone black scale and blue scale uh but i'm completely torn about what to do with it like i, I did it it looked fine it looked competent enough but it doesn't really fit what I think of Star Drakes as being like. They're supposed to be like iridescent, like glittering, mm. pulsing with energy, um, which is obviously very hard to paint. But when I tried to do a more aggressive color scheme on the other side of the head, it looks like a cartoon, basically. So I'm trying to find a, a color scheme that is a little bit more unusual than just blue, but also has maybe a lot of different colors in it. So yeah, I'm still it's still a work, massive work in progress. And I want to be completely sure before I start because yeah, uh, that's a big model, and yeah, you, you've got to commit. Yeah, I can I can believe it. I'm mm. thinking about doing something slightly weird at my lord to change, but I'm going to test that first. Yes, if I'm wrong, yeah. then that's a big bird man. Too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I've I've no idea what I'm going to do. Um, maybe I'll just post more pictures of 
random star drake i'm going to just paint over that head over and over again so it's <laughs> going to end up like this big ball of paint all the detail will be gone but hopefully i'll get it's i've been mad like i've been looking at pictures of geckos and stuff like mm. what to, what to lizards are incredibly colorful like yeah, it's insanely colourful and like beautifully so. Uh, but I think if you tried to realistically put that, like go one to one from that onto a Star Drake, it would look silly because the Star Drake mm. is unusually kind of that kind of scale armour doesn't really exist in nature as it does in, on on dragons. So it's, it's hard to find a, a comparable surface or, or material in nature. Yeah, I find that um, reference pictures are useful to an extent, mm. but they can't make decisions for you no really they just give me more ideas which is annoying because i just <laughs> want to focus down on one thing and do it and, and, and make it look really good yeah i think this is this has been a very color selectiony month mm. for me generally like it's, it's i think it's a big part of what makes a model look good actually is the decisions you made about what colors you were going to paint them which yeah. sounds dumb that sounds like a dumb thing it's to really say true, though. but yeah you're not wrong like you know there's you know i've actually got a lot more month done this month than i thought i would mm. um right at the start of the month i was sort of stalling on a bunch of different projects yeah at once the first thing i did was finish my three harlequins for shadow war oh yeah so we haven't actually played shadow war yet no and ultimately i probably will want more than three harlequins which is a scary concept <laughs> given how hard they were yeah but that of course me um i'm pleased with how they came out and i i think they you know i i, I mentioned that concept on the pod like as a as a little aside and mm. it's nice that it's now done um <clears throat> the thing that was difficult about it was like coming up with an individual color scheme for each specific harlequin yeah. that also had enough elements with the other harlequins that they seem like part of a unit but it also was kind of a useful exercise in both coming up with these things actually doing that solving that problem but also in trusting my instincts mm. a little bit more so um i'd looked at loads of reference stuff like fashion and and cyberpunk art and ideas that i had 80s stuff because i had this idea of like i wanted that necromunda feel mm. and, um but i also realized that like in addition to color you've got to think about the kinds of contrasts you're creating and the kind of ranges you're establishing and it feels like you it's it's difficult and and risky to vary the range or the the, the extremes of the color so contrasts that you're creating um, more so than it is to have completely different colors within the same unit, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like you almost need, like I wanted to kind of, you know, I wanted them all to pop in the same way, even if the contrasts that they're using to pop were completely different. Right. So the first one I did was super easy because I knew exactly what it was going to be from the start. I knew it was going to be red with a little bit of blue, black and white. Because mm -hmm. uh, the thing I was really conscious to do was avoid literally Harley Quinn. Because you get into Harley, because you, you, you're in Harlequin colors, actually, mm. like as in clown Harlequin, but specifically Batman Harlequin colors. Yes. And I was, you know, don't know how successfully I avoided that, but on that particular Harlequin, I avoided lots of the kind of card symbol hmm. um, stuff that you see on Harlequins, like the hearts and the diamonds. And they have other meanings in Eldar, but they're hearts and diamonds. Yeah. And that, you know, obviously communicates a specific thing. So she avoids some of that stuff. Um, but I knew because uh, she's also based on a particular outfit worn by Grimes in a music video that I wanted to kind of push it in that direction as well. So that changed some things about hair color and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then um, I knew I wanted another one to kind of, because that one was all about kind of hard lines that have like a kind of uh, sort of the 80s gradient, but as an outset out outfit, you know, the kind of the 80s chrome thing where you have the kind of the mad kind mm -hmm. of rainbow horizon over metal that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. 
So one of them is a gradient from sort of tur- dark turquoise through purple to orange, which is um, all kind of, again, it gets, away, it gets away from the kind of strict RGB of having a red-blue color separation, but that was like a whole thing by itself. But a fun gradient to paint because no freehand on that. It's just one kind of mad shifting color. Mm. And then because I had those two extremes established, it was the hardest thing to try and figure out the third one because I had a sense of what I wanted to do, but I didn't actually think it would work as a miniature. Um, and I ended up sort of breaking away from the spectrum of the other two and doing green and bone as contrasting colors, like a little bit more muted in some ways, but with more invested in freehand. So this was my kind of breaking into t- taking freehand checks and things seriously. I got some better brushes, which helped a lot, mm. um, and did things in sort of careful sub-assemblies. And it took fucking ages. Um, but I, I think the end result I'm really pleased with, but it was just a lot of very intensive work. And, you know, I think the actual execution was fine because they're not very big models, but like just a lot of like worrying and thinking and, you know, sort of not like, um, not knowing if something was going to be right until I'd done it. And the notion of painting more of them is honestly a little bit intimidating. Mm. So I'll be happy to play some games of Shadow War, but. I'll probably find excuses to not expand the model count straight yeah, away. I might add a hero or something, but yeah. we'll see. But also it made me, it definitely put to rest any idea of doing a, uh, a full size army, a, an army. The other reason is I can't because I wanted to mount them on the Mechanicus bases, which I think is so important to the way they look. Yeah. It kind of establishes the kind of like city cyberpunk thing that I wanted to establish was putting them on these scenery bases, but those scenery bases aren't made in Harlequin size. They're mm. bigger. Because Harlequin should be on a 25 mil base. Yeah, I've got the same problem with this Katari, I actually. And I figure for Shadow War, no one's going to care. Yeah. Right? Like, you and I won't care because we can, you know, if, if something's close enough that the base size would have made a difference, we just go with what feels right. Mm. Like, um, but for an army over time, I think that will matter. Yeah, so, yeah. um, you know, I, I'll stick these as a, as a, an individual showpiece sort of thing. Um, but the interesting thing is the flip side to that, and neither of these is the most time consuming thing I've done this month, but the other thing I did last week, um was two test models from the nurgle set mentioned earlier which was the exact opposite experience from mm. a painting point of view and having also been working with thousand sons a lot this month um it was such a relief like it was such a strange experience because i decided with the nurgle marines i had an idea of what i wanted to do but also i knew i wanted to try painting like how they tell you to paint in the books and stuff yeah in a way that looks good on the tabletop and is relatively painless because I've now f- basically, I've now finished the burning of Prospero of thousand suns, mm. but the time consuming method for painting them, I did came up with back in October. It's, it's a seven stage process to paint everything on those models that is red. Yeah. It took a fucking long time. It took a while. And I like the way it looks, but in hindsight, <laughs> like, actually, no, I am. I'm gonna, I, I feel more compelled to do more with those models because they took so much time. Yeah. But with the, you know, when we went to Warhammer World, I think we mentioned this last podcast, I was really struck by how different the GW kind of like, not the heavy metal style, but the art, like the studio painting style. Yeah. I think we both, we both said this last month, mm-hmm. right? Like there were things about those models that you're like, I could do that. Like that it wasn't so far above my ability that like the best golden demon or the best heavy metal stuff is. Yeah. It was like, I can probably get to there within a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were things about the way they were painted that were, um, the way I don't paint 
like you know lots of use of washes to kind of get those like you know really entrench those highlight lowlights even mm. um and then specifically very fine very high contrast line highlighting on edges um i sort of i think i got addicted to lamy and medium while doing the silver tower stuff <clears throat> and that resulted in everything being a blend all the time I don't think maybe Zinch lends itself to that. Like yeah. everything is a kind of swirling, you know. Yeah, everything is a swirling power sword or a swirling panel of armor, and and the notion of just like take your color, shade it, and then fine line highlight to make it pop was kind of alien. And so I took an afternoon and painted that one plague marine, and painted him completely the opposite to how I paint anything. I fully assembled the model, even though he's holding his gun against his chest. I. Sprayed him uh, grey, and then I sprayed him with Zandri dust spray, which is a sort of sand colour. Hmm. And then I base coated everything. So I painted all the metal, I painted all the tentacles, I painted all the cloth, I did everything, all the bone, base coated everything. Then I washed the shit out of it, first with um, Seraphim Sepia and then with Non-Loyal. And then I fixed some bits, and then I edge highlighted it, and then it was done. And I really like how it looks. Yeah, it's great. Because it looks like the ones from the books. Mm, it does. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I can do this in, like, six fewer steps. <laughs> right. If I worry less, which is a kind of, I don't know if that's my tip for the month. It's mm. just, like, try not freaking out as much about sub-assemblies. Yeah. Because while I was doing this, I was, I'll maybe put a picture in the show notes, but, like, I was so deep in my final tactical squad for Thousand Suns, which every, you know, I painted this, shoulder pads on the sprue i mounted all the heads on little sticks and painted them separately i did the legs and then built the torsos on the legs base coated and then did them i painted all the guns separately and then attached the arms and then did all the backpacks in one big go and i had like a day of painting backpacks and that was great everyone loved that and again love the result but the whole process got fully into like this is work yeah like, i'm not having i have it's a stream I, i'm what yeah i i have a stream on but i'm not I'm not loving this process. Mm. I think it'd be a lot more fun to do it for an individual model, but you know, mm. but yeah. And then, you know, I did a little plague walker, um, where I've done, I'm doing all my Nurgle flesh purple, which is a weird decision. And uh, demonette hide is a really lovely color. It's like purple gray. There's a base coat goes yeah. on, goes on beautifully over a gray base coat. Mm. It's one of those like first pass you've done kind of things. And just wanted to see like, cause they got 20 of those guys and they're quite gribbly. They take washes very nicely, but it's like, what happens if you just, Base coat and wash them and then dry brush them in a few different, wash them in a few different colors and dry brush them in a few different colors. Mm. So from a kind of purple to purpley gray to bone and it looks really nice. Mm. It's like, yep, quite simple, quite quick. Um, I like purple for necrotic flesh because it's a little bit unusual. It, uh, contrasts very nicely with bone sand, yeah. like purple and like, because it's basically yellow and it's basically orange and blue, but mm. color shifted in one direction. Um, and, um, yeah, just, you know kind of really gratifying process and i had this sort of head on chin like hmm i just had loads of fun doing these two maybe this is the direction i should go in i suppose well for your free time <laughs> not at all <laughs> i'm technically unemployed tom this is both very poorly for everything mm. but yeah so i don't know if that like i don't know if that, that's necessarily an experience that you've had tom because obviously stormcast are quite a kind of a fun process i imagine generally gold is such a fun thing to paint I yeah think. gold is good and also it's a little bit different to the it's, it's less punishing when you edge highlight gold than if you're doing color so if you're doing your kind of space marines and they're blue and those edge highlights are much much brighter and if they're a bit rough then they're going to look bad 
Yeah. Whereas if you're highlighting gold with lighter gold and then silver, it's kind of fine. It doesn't mm. really matter. Like UI doesn't really notice that like if it's not the cleanest line, it's not the cleanest edge highlight. So it's very forgiving. Um, it's going to be interesting to paint some Primaris where they're all sharp lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have this sort of secret thing of like, am I committing to yellow? Because mm. yellow is famously hard to yeah, do and I'm going to hate myself. Like, but I don't know. Got to, you got to go with what you got to go with the fantasy. And I got, yeah, and if the fantasy is yellow and black so be it. men, then that is what it will be. Yeah. So I wonder if uh, starts painters primaris will highlight any inadequacies in my edge highlighting. Uh, but it's a good way to practice. I would recommend both with edge highlighting and freehand. Good brushes make mm. make a difference. Yeah. Um, like I've been I, my first eight months of painting or so was basically exclusively with army painter brushes, which are super cheap. Like, yeah two quid ago kind of thing um tend to but the they're not very they're very light they they bend i don't they're not very springy mm. um they're not very stiff i don't know because you don't want a stiff brush but you want a brush with holds its shape yeah and those brushes don't really i find they're fine for some things but mm. and now the ones i've still got i treat as spare brushes and for basing and glooping yeah. texture paint onto stuff and that kind of thing mm. I started using GW brushes, um, and, uh, Kalinsky sable brushes, um, to give them a go. And the difference is very pronounced. Um, mm. I have some misgivings about Kalinsky sable because it is uh, real hair. It's animal hair. Mm. Um, as I think all sable brushes are, um, which is a, yeah. a thing to make your piece with. I've, I'm, I'm trying it. Uh, I'm taking, um, my decision was I will give this a go and make, take very good care of those brushes, mm. but I could have totally understand it making people uncomfortable that they come from a, an animal that's been harvested for its fur. Apparently they're ethically sourced, but don't know. So it's a big question mark. Yeah. Interesting. So it's something worth considering because obviously artificial, um, you know, synthetic brushes are also a thing. It's just that the synthetic brushes I've used are of pointedly lower quality. So mm. don't know, but, um, but yeah, that made a big difference. And also it made a big difference with that edge highlighting. Like I found actually quite fun to do with, yeah, with awesome. a, a nice brush and sufficiently watered down paint. Yeah. Turns out Duncan was right. <laughs> He's always right. He is always right. So yeah, that's, uh, I guess my tip for the month would be don't worry so much. Don't worry. Have good brushes. Yeah. Also I found that, um, you don't necessarily have to paint surfaces you'll never see. That's my other tip yeah, for the month. That's a good one. Yeah. I had my, found myself, um, doing a second pass of shading on the, on space marine shoulders that were about to get shoulder pads mm. and it's like what are, what are we what are you doing <laughs> like literally we'll never see this unless something goes wrong yeah you're you're making sure the super glue has less to adhere to yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. yeah so no, yeah. yeah when people pick up your models they're not turn them, don't turn them upside down and look up into the cracks yeah so you know a future project and again this is dependent on timing but i would like to enter armies on parade this year oh cool which is uh like a kind of store by store competition where you create like a two foot by two foot scenery board for your force and display them and people go into the store and vote on their favorites awesome. i'd like to do that with my thousand sons mm. because that then makes some additional use out of the time i've spent on them yeah. but also given that i'm very unlikely to play horror heresy at all that's the thing i can do so i might you know maybe expand it a little bit but work on a board mm. using the uh, burning of Prospero cardboard boards as a kind of inspiration. I build one, yeah, basically. That'd be, cool. that'd be cool. Um, if I do that, I'll probably take a second pass at those models for some weathering and detail and to fix some of those mistakes. Mm. But learning that, like, for you and me playing a game that looks good and even photographs well, 
I just don't need to worry as much as I was about mm. every angle. Like, yeah, every angle and trying to fix things. Particularly because I'm not like good enough that when I do that, it results in like a perfect model. Mm. It just results in me spending more time on it. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I don't know, there's certainly diminishing returns. Yeah, for sure. So shall we talk about Prospero burning to the ground? It just won't, it just can't put it out. Stop the always on fire. Roll Prospero. <laughs> it's been on fire for 10 months ever since we started painting these miniatures. Indeed. So yeah, so me finally finishing the Burning of Prospero set of Thousand Suns at long fucking last uh, meant that it was time to play another scenario yep. in the box set. So our battle this month uh, comes from that set again. We spoke about it, I think, two months ago now. Yep. Really interesting little kind of bespoke skirmish system for fighting these kind of street by street uh, conflicts uh, that take place in the sort of the final hours of the battle for Prospero. So Magnus is missing. He's sulking somewhere. Mm. The surviving thousand sons led by Araman are defending the last city left on Prospero that was protected from the space wolf orbital bombardment by massive kind shields. So basically a big psychic shield. There's a good thing in the Inferno book that establishes that because the Thousand Suns did nothing as the uh, as the Space Wolves arrived, they were completely passive. They didn't even show up for the, in the battle for the first 10 hours of the mm. fighting or something. Um, there's sort of the sense of like, but are they really all that bad? You know, you know, you know, but any doubt was put aside by the fact that the one city that survived survived under this giant magic <laughs> shield. Like, do you think they're really in breach of this prohibition against? Oh, oh, yeah, there they are. It is. Yeah, there it is. Um and so this scenario that we chose to play um, is a really interesting one. So this is uh, the first scenario was about Thousand Suns trying to hold the line as the as the Space Wolves break into the city of Tisco, which of course you did with Guy Gore. Didn't go home. Didn't yeah. fail and then leave. Guy Gore running merrily to yeah. continue butchering civilians. That's what he loves to do because they're all assholes. <laughs> He's definitely the a good guy. Yeah. Um, this scenario flips that a little bit, and it has. Um, Araman and a unit of a cabal of Terminators hunting the Sisters of Silence in the ruins of the city. Mm. Sisters of Silence being sort of psychic gnolls that are completely resistant to psychic power and very good at killing psychers. Mm. So the Thousand Suns are trying to kind of like get out ahead of them. Um, and the, I mean, the, the flavor text begins with like Gaigor licking blood off his knife so that he can remember what real things taste like <laughs> because there's too much magic. Yeah. And rather than just having a polo mint or something, it's like, no, nope. it's the space wolf equivalent. Yeah. Breath mint. I'm, I'm just eating my knife. What? Like, yeah. Like a dog with a chew toy. Yeah. He's literally smelling the, the kind of the smell of whatever the after effect of magic going off is, which I imagine, imagine must be an odd yeah. scent. And he so, it so offends him so much. It makes him so angry that he just goes, licks his sword and charges headfirst into the nearest batch of enemies. Yeah. And therefore vanishes from the battle. Yes. He just <laughs> so runs in this one. It's like he, he ran straight through the enemy in the first scenario. And in my mind, he's just kept on running and uh, he just, he's, he's just faster than ever. He's just he's out the, the street. He's everyone. the forest gump. He is. He's just, going, he's just going with his lightning claw. Run, guy, go run. <laughs> there he is. Stab, stab, stab. So he's not in this scenario. So, um, uh, he was just off the board somewhere. Somewhere, yeah, having a nice time. There's also a much bigger board mm. than the previous scenario, which is really nice to see. And the board yeah, is really great. nice. Um, so you had a full squad of Sisters of Silence and a full 
squad of tactical marines mm. i had so he had 15 models to my six because i had five terminators Indeed. and iron so five tough tough dudes however i did additional support in the form of an off-screen titan yeah which is an amazing really mechanic. cool so basically above one of the great pyramids of tizka there's a, a decommissioned titan which is a sort of three skyscraper tall gigantic mechanicum war machine mm. that is crewless and decommissioned but Araman is controlling it using the warp which is kind of an amazing thing like he switched it on and mm. um, what this let me do is at the beginning of every turn i could place a targeting reticle on one square of the board mm. and then we'd roll off on d6 and whoever won if if we if the if i won the roll off then the reticle stayed where it was if you won you got to move it to an adjacent square and if we drew then the titan decided to shoot something off the board and the reticle was just removed and then at the end of the turn so after movement everything else if anything was still on that square um they died instantly Mm. as they were shot by a volcano cannon yes um which nothing so no spoilers nothing died but it feels like because you get to move after the tactical reticle appears nothing really will mm. unless something mad happens well, i think the best way to use it is to use it in combat so you put it on a you're planning to pin in combat and if you get the priority you go up to them and they can't move away yeah i think whenever i pinned you in combat people died so it's, mm. it's but i think but i think the reason it's there is because of the way the victory conditions work oh yeah is essentially it creates a no-go zone like a roaming no-go zone mm. every turn yeah and so the way the victory conditions work is if i kill all five sisters of silence i win if any of your sisters of silence can survive eight turns or until all of the terminators are dead not iron then you win um and what was really interesting about the setup is uh there were three big boards and two small boards with like bridges on them basically and two of the big boards were connected to each other and the third one was connected to the others via a bridge and you had set up all your models first kind of scattered Mm evenly through across the the big boards and then i could set up my units anywhere i wanted on the two bridges which meant i had the choice of creating one big force on one bridge or splitting my army Mm. um but because you deployed first we should start with why you deployed how you deployed and why you deployed like you did yeah so you, you had to deploy one uh person per square which is unusual because the cool thing about the game is that people can move into, you can have four people to a square Mm. and you've kind of formed these in property squads as you're playing. Um, So having them all in separate places was an interesting, uh, it's basically, I just wanted to spread the objectives around. So the sisters, a a couple of them were on one big board. Um, One of them was on another and another one was on another. Just kind of like space them out, but also make sure they were screened, make sure they were space marines, just normal space marines uh, in the way of any charges potentially. Um, And just kept it neutral, really. Just kept it, you know, basically made you make the decision about what you're going to attack uh, and spread the risk across the three boards, basically. Yeah. I had the sense that if you you know geared one board particularly the board that's isolated towards like close combat or ranged mm-hmm. i would counter it or one of the other boards yeah there and that would be the circumstance in which i would split my forces but because you evenly distributed yourself um i didn't want to risk splitting my terminators mm-hmm. um i think it's interesting like how obviously like old dice games it can be swingy um but what I didn't want was to lose the initiative and just lose those units mm. 
before they could do anything or like use lose half of them and then have an understrength unit getting beaten up by everything as everything else struggles to catch up yeah so i chose to i then chose to deploy everything on the bridge that wasn't surrounded the other thing i could have done is placed everything on the bridge that was surrounded yeah that would have been a very different game and a very interesting yeah um but i chose basically to place all of my stuff in a sort of spearhead at one end of the corridor of streets and just work through you basically um that was the plan so um there's a few interesting kind of little mechanics off the start so Araman's presence on the board means that whenever we roll off for initiative, you roll a d6, but I roll a d8 mm. because he can see the future. So he's really useful. Get, yeah. Well, technically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to yeah. an extent. To an extent. Um, and also when doing, uh, warp checks, also when I'm trying to cast spells, you know, to remind people this works by, I declare what I'm going to try and cast. And then we take it in turns, me going first to draw a card from this deck of 18, I have 18 warp cards. You have 18 willpower cards. And so I might get something simple. Like I draw a two and you draw a one. And after we've drawn each drawn three, we sum up how many points we've got. And if I win, I cast a spell. If you you win or draw, then I don't cast a spell. However, different cards have different special rules and, and some of them interact with different ways. A really simple example is one of them is worth more if the sisters of silence are on the board, which of course they were for this scenario. Yeah. For me, one of them is worth more if Araman is there. So, you know, there's different different things that can happen we can get into exactly what can happen mm. and how unlikely that might be uh <laughs> later on but um the other thing araman does is you draw an extra card whenever you're casting with him so he, you have a greater chance of getting those spells off um so yeah so first turn i won initiative um off my d8 roll so I kind of had seen my the spells that I had for this particular scenario and I knew what I wanted to do and I really loved the way this ended up looking. So I had a spell called Shroud, which allowed me to create like a mist on a tile hmm. and you can't, which acted as a piece of cover for blocking line of sight for shooting through, but you could stand in it and shoot out of it. So Araman's Cabal successfully um, created a like... um shroud of mist in front of him and then sort of marched forward Araman and the Terminator captain into that mm. so that they could shoot at your tactical squad that positioned ahead of them but not get shot back and the guys behind them would be protected uh, I have two lightning claw terminators that kind of charged up one other side obviously they can't do anything yet because they're not in range uh, my other units moved up and uh, then I got to use one of my other cool powers where, you know, the description of it's great, but it basically thousands of sons just start telekinetically hurling pieces of their destroyed city at people. And that, that did, um, one point of damage to a lone, a lone space wolf tactical marine who will be very important for the next <laughs> three turns. Positioned at a, a choke point, um, where the, when you put down the boards, you also put down scenery uh, according to the map for the scenario. And these block line of sight and obviously block movement as well. So it creates some quite obvious choke points where, you know, I wanted to just kind of stuff them full of chaff space marines to try and s slow down the, you know, relentless onslaught of these huge lightning claw terminators. Uh, and this one guy, he held the fort basically. Uh, yeah. he, he stood his ground uh, on the entrance to that little choke point. What was amazing was he survived, obviously, five getting rocks thrown at him. Mm. He then. So got successful armor saves for every shot that was then shot at him yeah including i think one where i i think i took a, i think it was his turn i took a photo of it because i rolled i think i rolled a d10 and a d8 
and you rolled two d sixes for your defense roll. Yeah. And I rolled a one and a two, and you rolled a one and a two. <laughs> yeah. And so they, he they was both fine. Yeah. He was fine. Um, but your tactical marines retreating managed to shoot and kill one of the lightning claw terminators just right off the bat. Yeah. Like, yeah, which is quite a big deal. So that obviously really hurt them. Um, so what I thought was going to be my charge, magic, shoot, block line of sight. Hmm. Um, cause I had this idea that cause the game ends immediately. If I lose all my terminators, I have a terminator with the Reaper auto cannon the huge gun so i'm gonna keep him at the back because you're less likely to shoot him yeah and as long as he's alive as long as him and Ironman are alive i've probably still got a chance yeah. so i was using the shroud to shield them knowing that you'd probably end up shooting the lightning claw terminators but i just didn't think i would take a casualty but so so it happened yeah it's quite uh because they've only got two wounds uh and if they happen to roll badly once that's it it's an interesting kind of combat system because everyone regenerates their wounds every turn so mm. everyone has like a set amount of toughness at the beginning of each phase uh but if you can focus enough fire on even the most powerful stuff you can take it down with relative ease quite quickly um so yeah I was, that was fortunate but <laughs> exactly what i needed to happen because those lightning claw guys are terrifying if they get attacks in and they kill people they can charge on keep charging into people can't they yeah yeah they've got get their momentum up yeah, which didn't actually, it didn't occur much, but it did, it did kick yeah. in. Yeah. And so that was like, it was not the lethal first turn I was hoping for. Mm. Like I had the first sense then, that like, oh, this wasn't quite mm. enough damage. Like I hadn't, I lost a Terminator and did nothing to you mm. in return, which is obviously a really bad trade. It was really cool to fall back as the Space Marines. So that, like, basically, the way the movement works and the kind of the way you can just form impromptu squads as people move in and out of squares with each other uh lens it creates this really cool kind of ordered sense of retreat where i was just kind of forming up in like a, a tactical defensive position next to this bridge that was like incredibly themey for how space marines would fight not necessarily how space wolves would fight in all their kind of rage and viciousness but it felt like i was you know following the, the codex of starters to the letter retreating covering you know uh, choke points holding the objective back keeping the sisters protected yeah and so you know even even then your sisters now that you knew where i was were already retreating into the back square basically yeah. like the back tile like getting across that bridge yeah they're going across the bridge into this kind of weird um like an altar like a kind of weird had scarab uh the scarabs kind of, everywhere man the scarabs it's where we keep our scarabs <laughs> it's the scarab room yeah uh, which wasn't suspicious at all nothing no, no chaos here whatsoever but uh this room's full of scarabs so they were hiding in there yeah so the um Next turn, I think, was probably that lone marine that survived that first. So he got a, he got a big rock dropped on him, hmm. and then he, he survived the rest of that turn. And then hmm. I think this turn was the one where he really started to shine because um, I um, I have a I had a spell that allows me to force one of your units to attack one of your other units, hmm. um, but failed to cast it because I think you got the you know you got the right number of nullifying rolls. Yeah. So obviously the the magic can really start when it goes wrong it, it really doesn't happen mm. um then have the nice thing of my guy with the auto cannon using his own psychic powers to give himself a kind of like precognitive shot where he has a vision and just fires in the psychic phase um with his you know d10 attack um auto cannon which again that lone marine managed to save yeah he's fine <laughs> he was fine um and then I tried to do drop rocks on him again, mm. uh, and then that failed. So I only got one spell off in the second turn, and they were 
it didn't do anything. So there was mm. like a, a no go. However, um, Ahriman and the Terminator captain were able to charge into melee. The lightning claw guy moved up and the other Terminator started to move up and around basically to kind of get in as you got your guys continued to fall back. I, I did do the, the Titan shot was a thing again, but mm. every, I think I, I won the role for it to stay where it was, but again, you were able to move away from it. It yeah. just came, created a zone where you couldn't go. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, um, was this, this was the turn where, yeah, so I shot at everything, I shot at that lone space marine with everything and he saved everything. Hmm. And then Araman attacked him with his D12 melee weapon, Terminator captain attacked him with his D8 power sword and he saved both of them. He was fine. Yes. Yeah. Everything, everything's okay. <laughs> um, your squad did, however, roll like double snake eyes back at Araman. So, so basically, uh, no one could get through anyone else's armor. They were really freaked out, I think, at that point, because they just watched Araman. The Terminators are terrifying. They're such awesome models. The Tartarus pattern, 30k Terminators. Um, there's a description of, uh, in the fluff introduction to the scenario where, uh, Guy Gore looks into its eyes for a moment and just can't move because it's such a, it's a terrifying maelstrom. Yeah. Also, you're just seeing the warp, basically. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Looking yeah. back at him. Uh, so I imagine they're a little bit off put <laughs> by that. One thing that was interesting that happened in that turn as well is I drew a warp card that allowed me, one, I, in, I think one of the failed attempts that allowed me to not gain the points value of that card, but instead discard one of the magic cards I had to draw another one at random. Oh, yeah. And that gave me a spell that would be important later because what I was looking for was another damage spell. So the spell I got rid of would allow me to swap the positions of any of my units, mm. which would have been potentially useful. But because we were fighting in a straight line, I didn't see it as being as useful as it might have been had, for example, I set up in two separate places. Mm. That would have been very different. Yeah. It was interesting uh, using choke points because uh, terminators are so big, they can only be two to a square. So you can only ever bring to bear in close combat the force of two Terminators, which is obviously very powerful, mm. but it's a different kind of proposition to having a squad of four kind of planning through people. So, yeah, so that even though it sounds like an uneventful beginning, it's kind of actually pointed that it was quite so non-lethal because I had the sense that like you had the 10 Marines and the rapidly retreating sisters, and I just wasn't making progress through them. Like, I had spent two turns marching and casting spells, and the spells were failing, and there's this sense that, like, that disciplined retreat that you were orchestrating had completely blunted what needed to be a kind of rampage. Yeah, a shock and awe. Yeah. Crash in and get to the get to the sisters. Yeah, like, you know, Armin's here now, and things are going to happen. So yeah. there's a sort of, like, a, it was, I had that sense of a ticking time, you know, ticking turn clock. We have eight turn to do this we've done two of them mm, and nothing's you haven't lost easy. anybody mm. and i've lost a whole terminator so it sort of felt very uncertain um and so at the beginning of turn three uh again put the titan marker down i think on that turn you managed to move out the way or maybe it was the next turn uh i, th I th think i ended up r winning most of the rolls for uh, yeah. the titan shots um i think it went on down on the center and i chose to leave it where it was because yeah. it was you know it was on turn three that you got initiative, mm. which you then get every turn until the final one. Yeah, I, I think. think so. Yeah. Um, but, but the, the bigger swingy thing in this was, so I, I used my new attack in the new motion phase, which is called, um, bioelectric. Oh, yeah. Lightning, basically. Basically force lightning. Mm. RM in electrocutes people, which, um, does one attack to the first unit it hits, but then it does potentially loads to the unit next to it. Mm. 
Um, and this is a great moment because, uh, as will become a theme. So Ironman obviously pissed off by how poorly this spearhead assault is going, just taps into the warp and lets, you know, let's go with this kind of outflow of warp power. Um, because the first card I drew was called, uh, warp flood. And there's only one of these in the deck. And what it means is the power I'm casting is automatically cast. You don't draw any more cards. I, it has happened, hmm. but the psychic phase ends right there. I don't cast any more spells. So drawing it as the first card on the first spell is actually quite bad for yeah. me because there's a good chance I'm going to succeed in that casting attempt with Ironman anyway. Yeah, sure. And now I don't get my other two spells. So, but nonetheless, so this surge of warp lightning leaps from Ironman into that lone Marine who survived everything. And surprise, surprise, it bounces off him completely. Nothing happens. However, it then chains onto the unit behind him and kills one of them. <laughs> Jim, <no. laughs> Exactly. So fucking invulnerable Stuart, hmm. the best space wolf. Um, you know, aces another, um, you know, save, but his mate behind him does it. Ash now. But that was my only spell for that hmm. turn. Whereas hypothetically, I could be killing multiple Marines yeah. if, if I hadn't drawn that, that warp flood. Um, so you got initiative, which gave you a chance to fall back because you can fall back out of being pinned if you win the initiative roll. Yeah. I think you won it like three to two or something ridiculous like that as well. It was close. Yeah. So you, I guess you kind of consolidated now into like two squads of Marines, I think. Yeah. So I decided to put um a, a bunch of them into a, a squad of four at almost the back of the board, like overlooking the sight line of where the Terminators are going to be coming up. Uh, just uh, with a heavy bolter in there and uh, a Vexler, who's a banner carrier, basically gets people, gives people re-rolls uh, and a couple of normal squaddies. So they were going to hopefully lay down enough fire to maybe take out another Terminator if I, if, if, if I rolled well. Um, and then in front of them, there was uh, the, the indomitable, invincible lone Marine and one other guy on separate squares. So it was very much kind of using uh, stragglers to block the uh, advance of the Terminator while laying down fire from the back mm. uh, with a big unit. I think he did move the Lone Marine into this space vacated by his recently incinerated pal. Yeah, I think uh, so. There were two of them there. So yeah, they could actually roll two d six back in combat. Um, so they, they were the kind of the screen. They were at the thin end of the wedge. Mm. That's where you don't want to be. Um, because you retreated, though, to give me a chance to fully move up. Mm. So Iron Man just chased, chased after him, basically. Um, although I rejigged the units a bit. Iron Man had been with the Terminator Captain, but I moved him to being with the Lightning Claw guy because Iron Man is far better in close combat than he is at range and so i wanted to have one really powerful close combat squad basically yeah. so i just you know swapped Aramin in for the terminator that had died mm. and moved um created a new unit with my kind of bolter and grenade harness terminator with the terminator sergeant um that combat phase went brilliantly for me oh, suddenly yeah. like um i've been rolling quite badly at the start and you'd been getting obviously amazing armor saves and it just flipped around like my armor saves were on fire like Ironman just waded into this mm. sea of bolters that were all trained at him yeah and saved everything which is it feels it felt kind of right yeah. you know what i mean this sort of you know one, one of the most powerful psychers in in the universe mm. just sort of walking into fire and it just doesn't touch him mm. um and because of the uh you know the rule about um if you have dual wielding a weapon you can make an attack after all your other attacks are done and that extra attack finally managed to kill <laughs> indestructible Stuart. he died but he, did. he died a hero 
He did. Yeah, he held me up for... Well, I had spent... I killed him on the third turn, mm. having wounded him on the first. Yes. Which is a lot for a two-wound space marine. He did very, very well. Uh, if anyone deserved to be interred in a dreadnought, it would be it would be him. Yeah. But he's dead. He's gone. Like, he, he was trodden on by a giant... Uh, I think Iron Man cut him in half. No, hang on. The Terminator just, just gored him with... Him. Yeah. yeah. Just stabbed him in the eye. So, that bad. was a shame for him. <laughs> um... But that meant that I'd sort of, I'd made up quite a bit of ground. Mm. And by this point was actually, you know, I killed three Marines. So like I was getting through, I hadn't lost anything. So like yeah. I was starting to pick up some, some momentum and bring guns to bear and, and that kind of thing. Mm. Going into the fourth, fourth turn, however, um, I very carefully picked my spells because some of the spells are really good against a big clustered group of units. Some of them are good against, so for example, because the, the warps lightning spell does more damage when it bounces i kind of what i wanted to do was like soften up one of your units mm. and then lightning the one next to it so that they take the big hit again and yeah. sort of try and spread some wounds around because you have to do all those wounds in one turn yeah because the marines are getting the health back um however um on my first spell which was um the telekinetic bombardment throwing chunks of tisker at people i drew warp flood again yeah so that one really? in 18 happened again and i was shuffling the deck between each time but Drew warp flood again, so Armin at this point just has more fucking warp than he can handle. Like yeah. the fact that Sisters of Silence there doesn't appear to matter because mm. Armin literally can't hold all this warp. Yeah, too much like warp. it's just um, and um, it's flooding out of him, but it is nonetheless you know happening. So I did manage to drop some rocks on you. Um, at which point though you got the initiative because of an interesting rule, which is that in the event of an initiative roll tie. The loyalists, i.e. the space wolves, always get it, mm. um, because they are the attackers, technically. They are, you know, they're the invaders of the planet. Um, so yeah, so your, um, your group kind of continued to fall back, but you did bring your other Marines, like the Marines that have been sort of bodyguards for the sisters just in case started to come up at this point, I think, as well. Yeah, they started to move onto the bridge. And, uh, first of all, it was useful to have those extra bolters trained on, um, the attackers but also it was just a way of putting a marine in every square and kind of trying to force just by f- weight of bodies stop the terminators from getting across the bridge and hopefully just waiting out the eight turns for the victory so i knew i wasn't really going to kill anything uh, because the good thing about having like a sightline corridor is that you can put loads of fire into it but if um the bad thing is that you can't shoot you have to shoot the nearest thing and enemies count as cover, so you can't shoot enemies behind. So Araman was doing an amazing job of just tanking it, and uh, he's got four wounds, I believe. Yeah. So you have to do quite a lot of damage to actually take him out. And if you choose to, you could let the Terminator die before Araman even dies. Yeah, I was using Araman to tank for the Terminator, weirdly, because yeah. I didn't want to keep allocating, because the second I get a second wound, you can't split the wounds. No. So no. I was like allocating through Araman, gambling on the fact that you wouldn't get through all four in a single turn, yeah. which you didn't. Uh so uh, I was pouring a lot of fire in, but uh, Terminators have like D8. Uh, Terminators have D10, Araman has D8. So it's really good at resisting damage. So the way the system works is when you, you roll a dice and then um, your opponent rolls a dice and you match each attack to each defense roll and the type of dice you roll affects the odds. So I, I'm only rolling D6s with my bolters, uh, but Chris can roll a 10 uh, with a Terminator roll. So that's why it makes them very hard to to take down so uh at this point i've kind of i'd lost so many marines i knew that i wasn't going to be able to pour enough fire into that spearheading unit to really kill anything for the rest of the game so it was it was total project lockdown after that just kind of making sure that it 
took you ages to get across the bridge. Yeah, every Marine gives him his life to buy more time. Absolutely. For the Sisters of Silence, which is a really nice thematic thing. And there was this sort of, yeah, it was, it was nice as well that this was Space Wolves on the defensive. Like, mm. Thousand Sons are still a Space Marine Legion. They can still fight and kill people. Yeah, right? very, very well. Like, um, so in my combat phase, Araman and the, lightning claw terminator that he was with managed to kill one of the sisters that hadn't got across the bridge mm. in melee so they just they killed her before she could do anything um the uh my auto cannon killed a guy mm. and i used my grenade harness which is like oh, a yeah. one-off attack which yeah, um did really well. it's like a grenade launcher mounted on the back of the terminator that i can use once per game to do like basically an attack with the a, a number of shots equal to the amount of models in a square hmm. so because you had consolidated your position into one big blob of guys it was the perfect time to just nuke them basically yeah, yeah. and i think that i think i killed th- three marines and a sister that turn that it was did, definitely the bloodiest well. turn interesting risk of war to, to consolidating into squads because um I, I get my rerolls for doing it but obviously they're vulnerable to lightning attacks and to grenade attacks and there are a lot of ways that you can be punished for it which is quite cool it's a really you have to make it make that decision quite carefully yeah it felt like a really cool moment as well because it's mm. sort of like that was the moment the line broke but yeah. the question then was like this was obviously turn four halfway through the game i'd covered more than half the board but had i killed enough people mm. to you know actually get where i needed to go and yeah. kill the sisters which is the the big thing so uh Turn five was the turn where the Titan didn't shoot because we rolled a paired, we rolled, drew, we drew on the roll off. So mm. it just decides to shoot something else somewhere else. Um, I did manage to cast a spell to trick your sergeant oh, yeah. uh, into firing a plasma pistol at the one surviving, uh, space marine from the other unit, mm. but he missed. So no, he, you saved it. So yeah, picked yeah. off him. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then I did manage to do the precognitive shot again from the autocannon. Mm. However, you that turn drew one of your cards that also, like Warp Flood, ends the phase. So um I got to do the spell, but it ha- had to be the last spell of yeah. the turn. So I got two spells that turn, but um that neither of them did anything. So mm. and also, yeah. So magic wasn't a huge factor. Um I think we, you also won the initiative on a tied roll of two. <laughs> so none of us feeling it, but, no. you know, Space Wolves might as well go for Just it. about ahead. Um, and so apart from the one Marine that survived the previous turn, you were kind of quite safely on the bridge and I had to just spend a turn moving up, I mm. guess. Like there wasn't lots to be said for it. However, this was the turn that we f- realized that we had been forgetting a super important rule for the entire game. Really? So... One of the reasons that having a weapon with a value of D8, D10, D12 is a big deal, apart from being statistically likely to beat an armor roll of D6, Mm. is that any result of six or higher does double damage. There's a critical hit. We had completely forgotten this. So every time Araman rolls an eight or something, he should be doing two damage, which should kill one Marine and one go. However... What we realized was that this would have changed the game so far, so much. Like that Marine from, you know, may well have died Definitely. much earlier. A lot of my spells would have done more damage, but also I probably would have lost more Terminators. Mm. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to risk assigning wounds to Araman, just have him soak them up because if he takes two crits, he's dead. Yeah. So there, there were so many things that could have gone, I think, in both of our favor that we decided that we were going to keep playing as we had been playing for the rest of the game particularly because i realized this in a moment where Ironman could have killed 
um, someone in one hit, mm. um, but didn't. Because the reason, but the reason for getting that role is bad is there are there are times where like if it's going to be the, like the last shot of a turn and none of your targets have been wounded there's actually no point taking the shot if you don't have crits yeah because even if it's like if it's like a d6 shot if, if you've got a you know a regular bolt gun and you're shooting at someone with two wounds uh without crits you can't kill them it doesn't mm. matter you just can't kill them because they're going to regen that wound anyway uh however you can kill them on a roll of a six if you have crits so we should definitely not forget that in the future <laughs> yeah it makes uh re-rolls more powerful as well so uh Stacking that squad of four with the rerolls, more chance to get those sixes, more chance to just one shot terminators. So yeah, it's a different game. In fact, I'd have played it completely differently anyway because I wouldn't have tried to survive eight turns in in that scenario. I'd have actually used the sisters yeah, to try I'm, and do damage. I didn't feel this way about the first scenario, but this one I want to replay partly yeah. because I think strategically there are other things we could do, but also, um, yeah, that would have made such a huge difference. But yeah. we decided, having forgotten it, that we were going to play as it was. Mm. Um, Otherwise, not a, like a massively eventful turn. I moved forward. I killed the last of the Marines on this side of the bridge, mm. um, <clears throat> but wasn't able to shift anything else. Um, start of turn six, Armin goes to perform his warp lightning on the surviving Marines again. And guess what happens? <laughs> it's another first card warp flood. There's so much warp. I know. He's just, he just, I oh, don't know what to do with it. It's just coming out of the fucking walls. It's coming out of his eyes. It's coming out of his hands. Um, so yeah, we, should, we after the game we figured out what the odds of this are because mm. it's a one in eighteen turns every time that happens, and by this point it had happened four turns in a row. Yeah, I think statistically it's likely to happen over the course of a magic phase because you're yeah you're casting three things and drawing four cards a turn. So it should happen. Yeah, so I suppose, but it's happened so early in each of your turns. It, <laughs> yeah, so it should happen eventually because if you cast three spells. Mm. With the normal amount of cards, you draw nine cards. Hmm. So you'll hit it eventually. And then Araman's drawing extra cards. He does one extra. Right. So it tilts it like 50%. So and then I'm drawing cards as yeah, well. And should... I draw three each turn and I've got one. Uh, yes. Yeah. So actually, got... yeah. So you're right. It should, it should happen just over half the time, but it's, it should happen just over half the time at all. But mm. then it's when in the, at what point you draw that card is mm. the crucial bit. Yeah. So drawing on the first spell is always the worst thing to happen because it shuts down the potential for anything else to happen i think it's uh it's highly likely that the phase will be ended by one thing or the other because as you're drawing each card you're putting it to one side so you're going to get through your whole almost most of your deck each magic phase. well you'll get through uh, so yeah tops half of it mm. but well so you'll either draw at maximum nine or ten cards mm, of 18 unless you do that thing because one of your cards is you can choose a more potent dispel mm. at the cost of giving me an extra spell cast at the end of the turn. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose in the, in the absolute, if, if Araman casts every single spell, I could potentially draw 16 cards in a turn. Mm. Um, so I'm almost guaranteed to hit it, but that yeah. is a very edge case mm. kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the odds are, it's unlucky to draw it so early every single turn though. Like it's the first spell of each, like for three of those phases yeah uh, three of the four it was the f in the first spell yeah, so twice yeah, it was the first like, card so yeah. it was like mm. yeah it was that sort of oh okay yeah this is happening um that lightning didn't do anything i don't think i think it i think it no but this is this was the turn where Araman and terminators got across the final bridge they did and killed every remaining space marine yep <laughs> Uh, what time was this now? Turn six, was it? Turn six. Right. Two so, turns. So you had two turns of hiding the sisters behind big scarab beetles. Yep. 
<laughs> I've, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> and so I was trying to flush you out using the Titan, um, but actually you won every roll for the Titan after that point. Yeah, and also so, they could just move out of the way. And also they can just move out of the way. But yeah. like, I wanted you to move into line of sight or yeah, like, you enough. know, around corners and things. But you had pretty good line of sight in the end. Yeah, that was one thing we figured out because the line of sight rule is you need to be able to draw a line from any point of the square you're in to any point of the square they're in, which yeah. actually makes it a lot more open than it seems. Mm. I think it's actually probably the way it needs to be when you don't have 3D terrain. Yeah. So you don't have the benefit of leaning down to a model's eye view to figure it out. You yeah. have to kind of... There's got to be a bit of an abstraction there. Really. Yeah. And also I think, I think if it wasn't that, then... Um, simply being behind a box would be a bit broken particularly because you can put four models in that square yeah, and they're all true. equally hidden like yeah yeah um but yeah so that seemed to to um work pretty well um the start of turn seven i did bioelectric lightning and you drew the card that means that it's the last spell cast of yeah. the turn mm. and then i failed so no magic happened that turn no the Sisters of Silence. Which was a big, we both looked at it at that moment and went, ah, oh, that was a big deal. Because yeah. that was one of my ways of getting the damage in, like mm. killing one. Like... Yeah. The interesting thing about Sisters is because they're, they're, they're are these psychic, they are these psychic gnolls. Um, they can't be targeted by certain spells at all. And, uh, when they're defending against spells, they're drawing extra cards as well. So again, increasing that likelihood of having that, drawing that turn ending, uh, cards that help me out so much for this, this, this game. Yeah. So your sisters are also equipped entirely for melee combat. Yes. So this was a very sort of, obviously a one-sided turn in terms of rolling dice, because it was just my Terminators marching forward and shooting, mm. but you saved everything. Mm. So um, there were no casualties at all that turn, which no. given that I only had two turns left, that means that I only had four sisters to kill on yeah. the final turn of the game. Yeah. Which, um, and that was, re- that was an interesting thing to figure out, because I was looking at it, and mathematically, it was mathematically possible if we were using the crit rule. <laughs> sure because then I could one-shot some of them, hypothetically, on yeah. a good enough roll. It was impossible without it. Mm. So that was where not having that rule had probably its most pointed effect. Yeah. But I still think we did the right thing to not bring mm. it in halfway through the game. Um, nice moment, though, was this time I did manage to cast um, Telekinetic Bombardment by Araman, and I did pull Warp Flood on the first cast again. <laughs> So it, very true. yeah, it happened on seven out of eight turns yeah. in the end, which is insane. Apart from the turn, the, sorry, it happened on things that stop the spell casting phase early happened on seven out of eight turns. Mm. Uh, they happened in the first turn, first spell cast six times and five times. I think that was me drawing warp flood, which is <laughs> like, um, just arm and again overflowing with it it's almost mm. like something's bad going to happen to him in the warp yeah. very soon who knows um or sometimes Araman casting spells is a bad idea who knew <laughs> um but in this guy was successful did manage to pull a big chunk of prospero out of the ground throw it at a sister of silence and you did fail both your armor saves and she did die and that was quite gratifying kind of, <laughs> like yeah like you're immune to magic powers you're not immune to like me box. just picking up an obelisk with my mind and dropping it on you no that'll still definitely work yeah um Charged into combat. Araman didn't care about being hit by sisters, really. No. Araman cut a sister in half. And then that you ran out of time. And then we ran out of time. Then I don't know what happened. So I suppose like some space wolf drop pods land outside and suddenly, you know, the, yeah. you have to retreat as um, forces come sweeping back. But again, to, like, despite being sisters. another loss, it feels like sort of bloody losses feel like a good, mm-hmm. and this is not an excuse, a good kind of plot outcome for Thousand Suns Battles of Prospero. Like, sure. you know what I mean? Like, I'm not kicking your ass every game. It's no, like, that's not how that, but it's not an easy, went. but it's not like an easy fight for you either. It's no, like, you know, those times are amazing. They're really, really good. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to kind of, 
the the scenario teaches you what each unit is capable of uh so the first one was obviously like basic units now we've seen the terminators at some point we're going to see the custodes which are the big gold uh emperor's personal bodyguard uh fighting alongside the space wolves yeah um so it's gonna be really interesting to see how all those units interact when they're all on the board eventually yeah because they the last scenario is but both players field everything yeah which is great yeah i'm really looking forward to that mm. and also actually something about this game that's impressed me is obviously absurd eight month hobby project notwithstanding <laughs> i mean obviously it took us long because we both got kind of distracted by other things yeah um you'd think it's six scenario game but actually it feels quite substantial mm. like we'll probably each one takes us about an hour i think so we'll get six hours at least of game out of this and it's very nicely presented I don't think these boxes, either this or Betrayal at Calf, make for very good entry points hmm. because it is the most, and the fiction's good, but obviously the models are quite, they are, you know, full sprues, multi-pose, yeah. complicated models. They're difficult to paint. They're not easy. They're fiddly by nature, I think. Um, so, but as a kind of, it's a bit like Silver Tower in that it's a big hobby challenge, but as an actual like standalone box game, it's really fun. Like I can imagine wanting to play these scenarios again. Yeah, I kind of wish there was a more modular game like this. Mm. Yeah, it feels like you'd almost um, auto-generate some of those scenarios in a way, or just come up with your own campaign with the same board pieces. And uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose like... you could come up with a kind of vague point system to mm. figure out like what is a tactical marine equivalent to, um, you know, just kind of swap in and out units and say that okay, well. What if you didn't have, what if you only had half the amount of tactical marines, but you had Gygor and what would that play like? Yeah. That kind yeah. of thing. That's like, really cool. Yeah. Try things like that. Yeah. Hmm. I really love the game system. It's, yeah. it's very fast and it's very easy to understand. Uh, in that sense, it is, it, it would be accessible if it wasn't for the huge hobby project around it. And it's a beautiful thing as well. It's really beautifully made. Yeah. We've got some really nice photos. Yeah. My, um, there's a, I mean, it'll be on the show notes so you can go and see it, but the, there's a great photo from the end, which is actually just the way the miniatures ended up posing <laughs> because I, posed my terminator captain with him kind of like leveling his pistol at someone hmm. there's a great um and my other terminator is firing his dueling bolter the other way there's a great kind of pose of them back to back one firing a plasma pistol at one sister hmm. another one firing a bolt gun at the other with Armin just pointing Armin <laughs> is supposed to be casting a special power but hmm. he's pointing yeah they kill that thing I might have to maybe do some touch-up highlights on RM to establish how overflowing with the warp he is. <laughs> yeah, bright green highlights everywhere. Because he literally just can't stop. No, he's pouring out. Yeah. yeah. He's got a real bad warp plumbing problem. Yeah. Like, whatever that is. He maybe he's just to too enraged. He's, got, he's too emotional at this yeah. stage. You know, his, his home city is being assaulted by his own battle brothers. His uh, Primark is having a sulk. And it's down to him. It's all falling on him. Yeah. So oh, what a good moment in the heresy that is. Yeah. Poor Araman. Poor Araman. <laughs> Poor everyone. He just didn't want to turn into tentacles and now he's ruined everything. Yep. But yeah, so that was our battle for the month. We should move on to some questions sure. before we wrap up. Um, our first question comes from someone who signs off a person on the internet. However, I don't think they are regular Crate and Crowbar community Discord person, hmm. a person on the internet. I think there are two separate people. Separate persons on the Separate internet. anonymous persons on the internet. Hmm. I think there's more than one person on the internet is what I'm saying. Interesting. Um, but they write, <clears throat> hello, Chris and Tom, as it seems to be the trend at the moment, I've recently reignited my interest in tabletop gaming. No small thanks to Miniatures Monthly. I attempted to get into the game back in junior high, secondary school, question mark. Yes, I think. 
um, by buying the Space Marine starter box. I assembled and painted my models to represent the Dark Angels faction, mostly based on aesthetics. Upon completing my army, I realized the game was far too complex, and I quickly lost, lost interest. With 8th edition now upon us, I'm ready to have another go. My question, though, is now that I have... And now that I'm much more concerned with the flavor of the different factions and armies, where should I start researching different factions and armies to learn about their lore and choose an army? I'm interested in reading about the 40k lore, but I'm baffled trying to find a starting point. I've taken an interest in the Death Guard, with them being featured in the fancy new box set, but I'm open to anything really. The Misses thanks you for re reigniting yet another pricey hobby, alongside PC gaming and Magic the Gathering, both of which I've picked up in the past few years. Cheers! Uh, P.S. I no longer have the Marines I had all those years ago. I think they succumbed to my air rifle hobby that arrived a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a good question because there's a lexicanum is the 40k wiki, which is good for kind of dipping into things yeah. and getting a sense. I've, I think just picking, you know, Horus Heresy books have been a good point for that kind of particular thing because yeah. they are quite fun and it does make a difference whether you receive your law from a list of facts on an infinite wiki page and whether you receive it from a novel i think yeah i agree i think the horror heresy has been a really good point for me and i've not read a huge amount of 40k fiction at all but um the horror heresy informs so much of the 40k universe that it's almost like the bedrock you're getting for uh, everything that's come since i think the thing though is it's so rich that you can kind of dig in any direction and find stuff yeah. so um i do think the the kind of law primer at the beginning of the new core book uh which comes in the fancy set but is also separate um is very good for establishing the kind of particularly the imperium but the sort of the setup of the universe um so maybe that's a good place to start because it allows you to you know I, I mean obviously by that point you've already invested but if you're interested in in death guard then that'll give you some some ways in mm. um if you're interested in death guard specifically then there is quite a lot of fiction for them in the starter set because they're in the starter set mm. um they feature heavily in the novel dark imperium um and they feature very heavily in the horus heresy books near the, after a while yeah. so starting with book four yeah that's what they, they really start to really hmm. start to hang out with the mortarian mortarian big scythe. yeah one of the clumsier themed primarchs i think <laughs> yeah it's slightly awkward it's, it, it looks a lot sense. like death yes and uh he smells poison drinks poison all the time yeah he just loves it but why <laughs> it's almost yeah. like he was doomed to fall to nurgle or something it's strange like just loves poison why did the emperor build this man who loves drinking poison he <laughs> <laughs> represents the type of that he represents the side of the emperor that loves drinking poison <laughs> there you go obviously and and you know we didn't want him to be closely associated with death so we gave him a cowl aside and called him mortarian <laughs> um but that notwithstanding um yeah i think i think wikis and then once you found an angle you like specific models i actually mm. find that the place to start is probably how something looks though yeah that's what it always comes down to. It's where all the fiction flows from as well, ultimately. Like, people look at the miniatures and they're told to write fiction about the miniatures. Yeah. <laughs> so once you've, you know, I think you need to know what you want to collect. <laughs> then you need to know if you like the backstory for that particular thing or which faction within that thing you find most interesting. But that also then has to be tied to a color scheme you actually care about. Because mm. I don't care about If you want to be a space vampire, but you hate painting red, then Blood Angels aren't for you. And that's true. Um, and then after that, just wiki holes you can fall in infinite wiki holes yeah next question comes from alex actually this is not a question it's just a nice statement oh. i thought i'd read it out because yes. i wanted to say thanks to alex for sending us a nice email 
Just wanted to say thanks. Your discussion and positivity about Warhammer has meant I've finally done it. I've purchased the Start Collecting Chaos Space Marines box and soon the bearers of the word will be spreading Holy Lorgar's word to the heathen forces of the False Emperor. Nice. I've recently I've been wholly subsumed into the lore of 40k thanks to reading 30 plus Horus Heresy books recently. Holy Fucking hell. <laughs> he really does like love word bearers. Like that was <laughs> yeah. a correct thing. Like we love books <laughs> and evil, um, which is true for multiple different True stations. disciple of Lorgar. Yeah. Um, but it was the idea that there's a place for people like me, a less competitive, more narrative, social focused in the game that really made me bite the bullet. And that's down to you and your podcast. Anyway, thanks very much. Love your podcast. Hope for, look forward to the next installment. That's from Holy Alex of the Word. Um, that's, <laughs> well, that's nice to hear. And oh, actually, I think that's something that's been, it's a reason I'm comfortable being back in it, despite being a competitive person. Mm. I'm into Warhammer because I want to make fun stories mm. about stuff. It's very good at that. It is very good at that. And, you know, I think they're starting to accept that as well. Mm. Like, you know, the very good Warhammer TV stream on Twitch uh, is good for showcase, making, bringing out the stories in games, even if they're silly. Like, yes, absolutely. They're, they're, um, they've got a good sense of humor about themselves and about the game, uh, which is very important. And what has been kind of lacking for GW in quite a soft series in the past. Well, it's a weird contrast where the fiction is mega serious <laughs> with some exceptions. Orcs are silly, but, mm. but the playing of the game is often a bit slapstick. Yeah. But also kind of epic at the same time and kind of like, you know, mm. You know, our Burning of Prospero games haven't been very silly. You no, know what I mean? that's true, actually. Uh, Ironman having too much warp is a bit silly, but it's also kind of a cool... It looks like, awesome. He just walked in a straight line for that entire game, just channeling infinite warp energy at people. Yeah, zapping people into dust with it. And, you know, and even though I lost, like, you know, from a story point of view, it's just like the Space Wolves have just had their asses kicked. Like, mm. they all died. Oh, yeah. Two sisters got out. Mm. And yeah, I only lost one Terminator. Like, is that thing of like? It's pretty great. That's a great result, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and the opening image of like, you know, the the space wings of uh, space walls are scattered, and they're they're just like peering into the gloom, and they just see this unnatural mist, and then suddenly these blaster bolts start hurtling out of the mist, and then a fucking crazy space wizard walks out and just evaporates your mate next to you with a lightning bolt, turns into dust, yeah. and just suddenly you're screaming and falling back and retreating and laying down, covering fire, and it's just uh, it's quite a terrifying image. And it's also I love the mental image of like yeah, the Thousand Suns are yeah the, the Zinch Marines and yeah they have magic powers, mm. but they're still Marines. Mm. Like there's a good description in the Inferno book of how after the Council of Nikea they did openly adhere to the ban on psychic psychic powers, so they just fought as a legion. Yeah, and so they can still do that. Mm. And so the 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 guy who but the guy who can slightly see into the future using it to guide his shots with his giant arm mounted auto cannon like these yeah. those kind of mental images are the that's really really awesome the reasons for playing the game mm-hmm. rolling the dice I think yeah sure so thank you for that email Alex that's very kind uh, Travis writes hello what's the worst miniature painting whoopsie you've made and how did you recover love Travis aka TJ Howes on discord hmm I've not had like a mega disaster since I've started back up mm, in the last year. I think the Star Drake is the most stressful thing, um, but it's not a mistake because it's a second head. <laughs> so you always make your mistakes on spare bits first mm. before moving. I've also like testing my uh, Skitari eye color scheme on a spare liberator because um, I bought a picture of a pack of three for 10 quid, like one of those like clip um, snap fit. Yeah, yeah. Packs you can get just purposely completely for color tests and for testing out color schemes. So that's a, a, a recommended way of trying things out it doesn't have to be anything like the model you want to ultimately paint but you can see whether the colors work or not whether mm. techniques work yeah i don't think i've had the biggest like 
cock-ups I've done have been knocking things over. Right. So I lost a reasonable amount of Drakenhof nightshade. Oh, I've done that as well, yeah. Wash to, well, luckily to my cutting mat, so nothing got stained. Mm. Um, and some micro sole decal setter. Lost some of that as well. Mm. In terms of fucking up models, like, it's more about, it's always recoverable, but it's always like, I use the fuck-ups as a sign that like, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> like, uh, I've painted a lot of red over gold in the last week. Mm. Don't know if it shows, but I did have a moment where I just realized that like I had entirely not painted like two whole parts of a backpack. Like I just left it gold mm. and I went to like this, as I say, it's a seven step process. I was on to like step five. I was like, I haven't even started. Why haven't I even started this one? And then I had to like, you know, syncopate it mm. and do that one at a different pace to kind of bring up. See, that's not, I wish I had a, a funnier, I fucked something up story, but. I don't really, I did accidentally glue one of my Thousand Suns to the jam jar I mount them on <laughs> by just painting the black trim around the base oh, right, yeah. into the thing and having yeah, to yeah. cut him out. That was silly, but very recoverable. Mm. Yeah, maybe it's, uh, people are scared of getting into it because that maybe they think that putting paint on something is forever, but it really isn't. Like you can ultimately strip paint, but also you can paint over stuff. As long yeah. as your paint's thin, it's all good. Yeah, I think I accidentally cut a thumb off one of my Kyrick Acolytes while mm. while taking them off the sprue. Actually, I have, like, when I was first assembling my Stormcast, I've got loads of, like, knobbly bits on there, hats, <laughs> and there's little spikes that I've, I've definitely snipped loads of those off by accident. Yeah. Uh, starting. I smoothed his thumb out with um with a file, and just, mm. he just got a little stumpy thumb now. <laughs> awesome. I mean, he's a, he's a mutant bird mask, yeah. bird man cultist. It's not the, it's the least weird thing about him. It's not wrong yeah. with him, no. Um. Cool. So our next question comes from Stuart, who writes, Since the triumphant return of robot booty Gingan Guliman, I wonder how Marnius Kalgar feels, the poor old fruit. Lord of McCrag, chapter master of the Ultramarines, and previously the ultimate blue badass, now relegated to a sideshow and massive pauldrons. Are there any other characters that have had an unfortunate fall from grace in the new edition of Warhammer 40,000? <laughs> so we did mention Kalgar earlier because he is in the book. Yeah. And he is sad. <laughs> just... he, he can't look sad about it. But no. like he was, you know, Lord of Ultramar. And now he's like, his new title is like Defender of Ultramar. Kind but of the cleric. Imp- mm. But the, 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 uh, the implicit subtitle there is like Defender of Ultramar while Gilliman is away <laughs> doing the things you used to do. Right. Just don't fuck everything up again. Yes. I'll see you later, dad. Like <laughs> poor Calgar. Yeah. That's good badly for him. Yeah. Ultramar goes poorly with Calgar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of uh, many other, I mean, for every ordinary space marine, having a Primaris turn up is going to be a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Wee little cipher. Yeah, it's poor cipher. <laughs> one of the most badass, one of the coolest characters in the whole thing, and now he's just like so tiny with his little I guns. think, oh, I think Dark Angel suffered particularly because the HUDs make them look smaller anyway. And yeah, that's true. They look tiny next to Primaris. Um, I suppose Armin got his ass kicked really badly by Ivrain, one mm. of the Inari, the new Eldar death oh, yeah. things, because she, Met him in the webway because he's been trying to get into their library because mm. he wants to reverse the rubric and turn his men back from dust, <laughs> which is what they turned into. Yep. Um, she cast a spell that turned the rubric marines with him back to life, <laughs> which is the thing he wants to be able to do. Yeah. Then she killed them. Massive trolling. So they can actually die. Mm. And uh, he was so sad he left. That's a, low po- <laughs> that's a real low point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a dick move. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, he is just, you know... He's gone wrong, that one. He has gone a bit wrong. Yeah. But, yeah, um trying to think. Anyone else has been had a, had a smackdown in the fiction that I've read? 
Not sure necessarily. Like Magnus did lose the invasion of Fenris, but he got what he wanted. Yeah, his whole, his whole plan was to lose. <laughs> Obviously, definitely a win for Zinch that one. It's why I play Zinch. Yeah. <laughs> like, my whole plan even was when to it goes lose. wrong is the plan all um i think maybe the dark the blood angels as a whole because their oh, yeah. world is trapped on the wrong side of the the big hole in space yeah bummer yeah they've had a really rough time with it but that, but they've gotten some awesome battle stories out of it which is what space marines really care about so yeah maybe they're so, i mean ultimately we're all winners yes in the grim darkness of the far future we're all winners <laughs> in the famous in the new 40k on. yeah Good. um let's see Ben writes, Hey Chris and Tom, just wanted to ask your opinion on the introduction of power levels in Warhammer 40k 8th, and what do you see yourselves using most in future? In many ways, I can see the many benefits of being able to build an army list in less than 10 minutes, but at the same time, with lots of upgrades being included in the cost of the unit, there's a lot of room to abuse the system. Do you think this will be a major problem for 8th edition going forwards? Love the show, Ben. <laughs> so, so power, people who don't know, power levels are like a big single number so i think a unit of primaris is like power level four mm. and if you want to quickly balance the game you can use them without digging into the granular points values for specific guns on specific men in specific ways yeah um i really like them and i think i'm probably gonna use them loads definitely i think uh in it won't damage the game because in contexts where it really matters in tournaments and things, everyone will be using points and that will balance the specific bits of gear. If you want to just put some models down and get a story out of it, power levels are brilliant because it makes better stories to have roughly balanced armies. Yeah. Even if there are slight imbalances contained within that. And a lot of the narrative scenarios have imbalanced armies, but with some special rules yeah. to kind of balance things out because like stories aren't about equally matched forces, mm. generally speaking. No. Right. That most battles are not about equally matched forces. Yeah, <laughs> in, history, in history. Tend, doesn't tend to be about equally no. matched forces. So having that sort of like slight wiggle room where it's like, I mean, obviously in an narrative scenario, you shouldn't be trying to be a dick about it either. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think I mentioned uh, when we were taking a break earlier, but like something I'm thinking of doing is um, do, maybe doing some rubric marines, some thousand suns to go up my demons for 40k, but giving them all warp flamers because that makes them short ranged, but potentially amazing. Yeah. Because uh, I think it'd be a cool unit, amazing in its charges. But uh, that is in points a lot more expensive. Mm. It's like it's like three. It's like goes from being a two hundred and fifty point unit of ten Rubik Marines to being a three hundred and seventy point unit. Mm. And so in that scenario, if I had that unit, I would probably say like, shall we just casually times its power level by one and a half, mm. just to kind of get it in the ballpark. They get it in the ballpark. Yeah. But I think as long as you can agree to do that with your friends, just saying like, okay, we'll go for power level 80. This is about right. Mm. Let's play is good. I think uh, it's, it circumvents uh, the kind of list building that is really fascinating and fun for a lot of people, but really tedious for other people. And so the, it could be a significant barrier if you only had points, because you have to refer to so many different pages, so many different books and actually sit down like with think about it with a calculator and a piece of paper and you know a pen and and it, it just as a way to get around that and let people just get straight to what they want to do that i think uh, power levels is are a brilliant idea especially when the points uh are still there and still balanced and will still be kept up to date with general's handbook style updates and that yeah it's a really good compromise it, it feels a lot like how we've been playing aos for sure yeah for where sure. it's like we do actually go on points values pretty exactly mm. but aos points values are also a lot less granular than 40k yeah, definitely so it's somewhere between those two things yeah like yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah Yes. Uh, Nielsen writes, uh, firstly, thank you for the excellent pod. 
I'm enjoying this apparent GW renaissance period among early mid 30 somethings that seem to start sometime in the past year. I too have renewed my White Dwarf subscription after over a decade away from the hobby, and have also dipped my toe in an Age of Sigmar starter box and even ordered the shiny new 40k rulebook. Can you think of a particular reason for this uptake, other than suddenly having disposable income and a yearning for more innocent times? I noticed most of the talk began during the aftermath of two major votes last year. <laughs> and a smaller secondary question, I read about Vanta Black and Black 2.0 recently and wondered what mini or part thereof you'd paint with this. Thanks for painting, everybody. Nielsen. Good questions. Mm. Should we do the Vanta Black thing first? Because <laughs> yeah, So Vanta Black or Black 2.0 are like super black paints that actively like absorb light and like little black holes yeah i'd uh i'd paint my sister's silence in that be that's a really good idea null completely null and uh, you look at it and they just like life Man, just that disappears a, into them that is a really good idea yeah i don't think i've got a better idea i bet it's really expensive though <laughs> be like yeah. a grander pot or something yeah, <laughs> yeah do the sisters of Sight and silence uh warlord titan just a titan shaped silhouette yeah. like hole in reality <laughs> we'll keep tripping over it yeah <laughs> um Man, man, that is really, like, because, like, most black armor is better painted, sort of, with highlights up to blue and gray, mm. so it shines, so you don't get that kind of absence. So i tell you what, the the monomolecular blades I did from Harlequins, I did black with yeah. highlight highlights, because I wanted them to look like they were themselves, almost like voids. I think Vanta Black swords for mm. monomolecular blades would be super cool. Yeah, that's nice. There you go. So in terms of the whys of this... It is interesting because it is a trend. Like so many people of our age have hmm. hit this point in life. I wonder if, I don't know, maybe people who are in their thirties now are just of the right age where they were around for sort of GW's big push in the late nineties, big sort of, you know, ascent into popularity, hmm. lots of stores everywhere and lots of, people who get to this age start liking the things they like as teenagers again i don't know yeah i think so it's part part like na- classic midlife crisis <laughs> stuff quarter tom I mean, yeah, that's true yeah <laughs> yeah um but i know the phrase midlife crisis just uh, overblows an completely honest instinct to do things you like to doing um but now with the resources available well i think i mean i think the thing that makes it not a crisis is that it's not um i desperately want to be 14 like midlife crisis is traditionally i desperately want to be 22 again right right I like i want a sports car and i want to date someone half my age right like this is the opposite of that <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah this is like i want to buy a dreadnought <laughs> and then paint it on and mind. enjoy my stable relationship <laughs> like, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, true, actually, it's like true. um this it's actually uh, weirdly i think it's almost it's not it's not a mature thing to do but i'm a little bit distrustful of hobbies that are viewed as mature mm. generally speaking like like a lot of them have to do with like, you know, well, going out and shooting something in the woods is, is probably viewed as a pretty kind of like manly and mature and outdoorsy hobby. Yeah. But I'd probably rather be into Warhammer on balance. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of, this is, this is a much bigger topic than we can get into, but there's a lot of like, um, different attitudes towards traditional masculinity tied up in what men do with their spare time. Mm. We've always hit this because video games journalists, um, but I've generally found that most people I, most, most men that I've met that I've got on with have a hobby that genuinely excites them. Most people I've met in my life that I don't get on with don't, mm. or are only interested in like, are only interested in like pulling and booze. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, this is a, it. like, 
I think there's a sort of point in your life where you go like, I just kind of want to explore the things I'm interested in. And this happens to be it for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a symptom of having an internal life in a way. <laughs> a symptom. Yeah. 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 It's a, a hobbies or creative hobbies and storytelling hobbies and things that involve artistic activities, such as drawing, painting, creating, that kind of thing. Um, we've said before, it's kind of an easy way of doing that stuff. I think um, part of it as well is that GW has gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. I think their ranges have taken mm. gone up a, a notch. I think the way they're selling the hobby and talking about it is, is you know with the has the right attitude and makes it very appealing and uh, you know open to young people and people our age like they're talking to everyone basically that's very true like i think had um my experience of obviously i, I came in through a weird angle because i my, you know i didn't do what you did and just walk into a dw store <laughs> one seeing, day tom walked into a shop just, yeah to see what was what yeah but i still had to have that moment and i was actually weirdly nervous about it mm. and like the fact that I was, you know, ended up having a conversation with a friendly man about stuff I was interested in and was surrounded by things that were quite interesting and vaguely affordable mm. was a big difference from the GW I kind of remember. And that, that makes a big difference. And I think also broadly this ties into the the resurgence of tabletop board gaming. Yeah, far more, far beyond GW. I think GW in some cases has been forced to respond mm. to how big tabletop has gotten despite them weirdly they'd cornered their part of the market yeah, so that's very true and i think for a couple of years they failed to profit from the fact that this stuff was getting bigger mm. except them you know what i mean like fantasy flight were on the huge rise in a very similar industry slightly different yeah and i also, also wonder if um just the way we're socializing in, in britain at least uh, it's very generational and maybe like a move away from just booze as socializing is actually encouraging people to find social activities that don't fit the kind of um the night the mad 90s where it was just about getting trashed every week and that was people's free time people still do that but i think maybe the generation coming in is uh, looking for new ways to socialize and new ways to hang out with each other yeah you're saying that millennials are basically into (laughs) we're into brunches and warhammer yeah man (laughs) marxism (laughs) all the good things (laughs) exactly um obviously that's a that's a massive generalization yes it was a vast generalization but like you know Um, what i mean like, yeah yeah for but, sure but sure. i mean but yeah maybe that stands and this is again this also express on this bigger topics i'm fascinated by but maybe beyond the remit of this podcast but like mm. maybe that stands opposed to a kind of you know the generation before like, this is the gen x mm. individualism like a lot more people of our generation do board games with friends and sort of socialize more at home and stop going clubbing at a certain point yeah. like none of my none of my friends in any walk of life still regularly go clubbing no. close to 30 really we always go quite a lot yeah and then mm. it just doesn't happen anymore like everyone's doing something at home yeah and that's a lot of time you're getting back in your life and it's still kind of time you, you want to treat as leisure time and money as well and money yeah like you know like that's the thing like this hobby is expensive and i think it's it carries a price tag that people until you kind of key your eye into the value of a little plastic man yeah. it seems extremely expensive sure. but really to be honest like i don't think i spend as a proportion of my income i don't think i spend any more on this than I was previously spending on going out. Yeah, you could spend, you spend 50 quid easily on a night out. Yeah. So the next time so, you're kind of like stroking your chin about a stock collecting box that you're not sure about, mm. it's like, well, that's a meal and two drinks. Mm. Yeah. Interesting question that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's one that we'll think about more, I think, and talk about more. Maybe I should return to it because I think yeah, it's, a, it's a lot more. You know, I'm, I'm like, it's, and it's exciting as well because it's like I'm off to a, a wedding next weekend um, with, um, you know, my partner's friends, like, not not people that I know particularly well, but the you know he the the groom is somebody that I don't know particularly well. But because we're both of this generation of like resurgent thirty something Warhammer men, mm. um, it's like instant 
it's an instant connection. Yeah. Like you can go from having like a kind of like, oh wow, marriage. <laughs> that seems, how's that gone? That, are you having fun? What a nice weather it is. Kind of conversation to like, you know. Strange to the plastic men. Skaven within 30 seconds or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Like. That's cool. And that's, you know, that's a meaningful thing. Good question though. Hmm. Next question comes from Rachel who writes, dear pushes of tiny persons. And I think she means pushes as in, <laughs> the marketing arm of Games Workshop. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people have bought boxes on their... Uh, yeah, but I think it's, you know, it's what happens when you're genuinely enthusiastic yeah, about something, sure. really. Mm-hmm. Um, not being a Warhammerer, thank you for introducing me to the Baroque surrealism that is the Age of Sigma. I've picked up the first set of books and I'm looking forward to reading something that combines two of my favourite things, high fantasy nonsense and big men in fabulous outfits. Whenever I pass my local Warhammer shop and glance inside, I always find the detailed dioramas of the battlefields with their various chunks of architecture and other artistically made detritus of war very impressive. But do they actually add to the experience from a player's point of view? What makes a good one and a bad one? Any favourites? And do you have any ambitions yourself in this area as far as your own model making goes? All best, Rachel. So, yes. For the, I think for the type of players we are, having scenery and stuff and having all that extra scene setting uh, paraphernalia, paraphernalia, paraphernalia um, sells the fantasy that uh, makes us excited to paint it. And so it's amazing how much different it feels playing on a big board where everything looks yeah. great. It makes it, it justifies the time you put in. Yeah. Like it, cause it means that people go to Warhammer world to look at the dioramas. We saw them when we went to Warhammer fest mm. um, and they're really exciting. Um, but the great thing about the game when you have good terrain is that you look at the board with your models and my models. And because we both have that commitment to not using unpainted models, mm. we've kind of created our own diorama. Yeah, on the fly. Sure. And it's not going to be as intricate or bespoke as the ones they customize for that purpose. Mm. But it's still like, you know, mentioned earlier, the moment at the end of our game of Prospero today, and that's just cardboard, nicely detailed cardboard boards that you play on. Yeah. But even then, that last moment had loads of atmosphere and the posing of the models suddenly synced up in a way that was perfect. Mm. And it's kind of like, yeah, I can see this now. It's mm. my mind's eye picture of what's going on. I've created a scene from one of those books I like. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was thinking about whether I'd buy some 40k scenery and uh, probably definitely will now. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um in addition to, obviously, I'd like to do an army on parade board. That's going to be a couple of months out, I think. Mm. But um my big purchase... One of it, so I was at the UK Games Expo the week after, weekend after we recorded the last podcast, actually. Oh, that was the miniature thing I forgot to mention. I played in the X-Wing European Championships oh, right. and came 95th. There we go. Hooray. <laughs> it was pretty good. Mm, sounded good. Yeah. Um, I'm happy with top 100 in Europe. That was, that's like, yeah, Sweet. that's a nice thing to be able to say. Um, so, um, but one thing I bought was a uh, terrain board. So that's going to be a project for the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by a company called Secret Weapon Miniatures. It's a lot like the Games Workshop Realm of Battle Boards, which are basically like massive plastic panels that lock together to create a six foot by four foot board. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted one of these because I have an IKEA dining table, which is six and a half foot, fully extended, six and a half foot by three three and a half foot ish which is really annoying because warhammer is ideally six, six four, by four mm. so it means that if i got a mat it would droop over the edges of the table yeah which means getting an mdf board to support it which at which point you might as well just make a train board so because this is rigid plastic and locks together quite sturdily i can actually just put this over the table and it'll look pretty good yeah awesome. uh, it's a big painting challenge because it means painting 24 <laughs> one foot by one foot panels <laughs> well, but it's just be a shitload of dry brushing yeah like 
but I'm excited about that because I think it will instantly make our games look better. I'm going to do it like a, I'm going to do it as the same way I've been doing my realm of metal bases for my age of Sigma, but I'm angling it so that there's nothing specifically AOS about it because I also kind of want it to be able to look like either the sort of, cause I'm using some blue, but blue can just be nighttime. So I can either, it can either be like a nighttime wasteland, which is fine for 40k. It could be the surface of a moon or, you know, the outskirts of some Munitorum kind of forge world thing. Yeah. Or, um, I might try and do some terrain to turn it into the surface of the planet of the sorcerers, which is where the thousand suns were exiled to Local. that exited warp literally, mm. um, over Prospero. So that planet, those two are now locked to each other, which is such an awesome kind of oh, return yeah, to awesome. thousand yeah. suns. So, um, that's going to be my big terrain project, mm, I think. That's exciting. The new kits uh, for the modular 40k kits are very, very good. So, yeah. So, uh, and also because it's like 25, 30 quid a time, you could just get one every now and then and because they keep on combining with each other in new combinations uh, over the course of the year, you could have a really nice table. Terrain was actually one of the things that really, I was really glad I was at Games Expo for yeah. because there was lots of independent. I also, uh, I think called Oathsworn, uh, is uh it's a company by a lady who just uh makes her own resin cast terrain pieces and i bought some pieces nice little ruins and a little arcane circle and stuff that i'll paint up yeah nice. perfect scale for aos but i'm always a bit wary about buying third-party stuff online because i can't just go look at it in a store yeah but actually having those big expos where you can so maybe next time you're at board game expo or something like that mm. have a look to see if there's any of that presence by yeah, like third-party manufacturers because i i did pick up some bits because they're not too expensive and mm. nicely made and but when you can see them you can instantly see whether or not it's going to look right with your models yeah, for and sure. that kind of thing yeah. our final question comes from pete also known as fienia on discord who writes hello miniature face which is not the name of this podcast, but maybe it should be. Yeah. Where do you find folks stand on canon when it comes to your miniature armies? I find it very difficult to find a color scheme to stick to when it comes to a custom color scheme. It's really easy for me to stick with pretty much whatever the established canon is for my Dark Angels, but my Dark Eldar took a long time to settle on as I'm not following an established cabal. Is this, as I suspect, a sign that I'm a big old dork who loves to follow instructions? <laughs> Love the pod, Fiania slash Pete. But it's, it's nice to feel as though your um, army's in that universe, the universe that you love. And the best way to do yeah. that is to make it part of that, you know, part of a standardized set of color schemes and rules and you know, uh, unit values. That, so you actually feel like you're part of the ongoing history of, of that universe. That's a big, strong part of the fantasy. I think if you're going to go do your own color scheme, you have to be really kind of into the concept behind it. Mm -hmm. So creating this forge world is going to inform massively the color scheme and if i'm invested enough in the story behind it then the color scheme will have that story ramifications for me so i'll, I'll feel it will feel natural to me as though it's in the universe even if it isn't just oh they're mars red um so yeah i think it's it's almost how you justify it to yourself that kind of lets you get into a paint scheme a custom one or not yeah you, it's good that you can't really be wrong That's and true. i suppose age of sigma is the one where it's the most freeing like you don't really have to do anything you don't <laughs> want to do you can explain anything but I do feel, I feel the benefit of being moored in the universe mm. somewhat. And I also really like, not just with color schemes, but the way that like, for example, army structure diagrams in the fiction, mm. which you're not obliged to stick to. The new 40k encourages <coughs> something like that through the battalion system, but you don't have to. You can buy whatever collection units you want. However, there's part of me, you know, like I know Fee plays um, Bolt Action, which is mm. historical war game. Uh, and 
I get the appeal of like having a regiment that is structured properly and has the right squad markings and paint markings and things to indicate where they all fit. That's one of the reasons that I'd like to do a Primaris codex compliant company is to eventually get to the point where I've filled all of the company requirements, even with their, even if they're smaller units that would normally be in a space marine company because they're Primaris, that makes sense. Yeah. And actually have that as a little collection. You could say that this is my version of the Imperial Fist's fifth. You know, that yeah, that's really cool. I, I see the appeal of that. Yeah, me too. Maybe that, so, but equally like, you know, I think maybe it's because I sometimes feel a bit unmoored in my own imagination. Like I, I come mm. up with something and I'm like, is this right? Mm. Whereas with, if, if I can follow some instructions, I'm like, <laughs> I have done law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's law compliant. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it means it's the paint by numbers thing, right? It's mm. the, it's easy to be creative, creative if someone else has given you the structure, which is what miniature painting is. And yeah, you pointed sure. that out. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. but yeah so it's fine also following those here are some suggested paint cut schemes things is a good way of having someone do the hard work of picking your spot colors for you oh yeah for sure that kind of thing yeah that's gonna be the hardest thing decision i have to make about my skitari yeah it's like what's the spot color the thing i've come up with recently is lights and eyes are a really good common spot color to have for an army i think it really is a good yeah. way to hang it together i found that that sort of started with the green flame on my cinch which is like they look all look so different, but that holds them together. Mm. Like, um, it even comes down to questions like, what color will the plasma weapons be? Yeah, you know, blue, red. These are important. I decisions. think about this a lot. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, My thousand sons have fire plasma weapons, so okay. like, it's hot because I mean, also like the lot of sun imagery. Mm. So yeah, and also the art for them seems to support that. Um, my Nurgle are going to have red. That's going to go down to red because it looks kind of yeah, it looks really good. Kind of, the, yeah, yeah. The official paint jobs of the because it makes, red looks almost dirty. Looks really I mean, good. Like yeah. it looks. Um, Space Marines will see. Mm. I really like in um in Dawn of War three. The plasma weapons are white, mm. which I've never seen done. But and it's really hard to do on a miniature. Yeah, I wonder how you paint that. But it looks cool. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. These are the, these are the questions that keep us up at night. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> miniatures monthly. What color is your plasma? I do love the look of a good plasma gun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is all the questions that we've <laughs> we've got this month. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode or next month's episode, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at um, You can also follow us now on Twitter at Minis Monthly. We have a dedicated Twitter feed where me and Tom post work in progress pics of the stuff we're doing as we go when we remember it's good yeah it's nice uh and if you would like to hang out with the well crate and crowbar community generally you can do so on our discord which is on the website at crowbar.com or there's a link to it um but also specifically on our discord there's a channel table talk that uh is where all of the miniatures people not the, not the miniature people it's where the people who like plastic men they they go they go there um <laughs> If you'd like to follow us individually, Tom, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's at PCGUludo, which is spelled L-U-D-O. And I'm on Twitter at C Thurston, which is C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. And I have an Instagram for miniatures, which I haven't updated in ages, but will probably do so soon with some Harlequins and stuff, um, which is Instagram.com forward slash exit warp, which is a bit like if something exits the warp like they do in space. Lots of warp exited Araman today. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, sometimes you exit the warp. Sometimes the warp exits you. <laughs> That's what it's like to be alive in the 40k universe. Indeed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next month.